Welcome to Poor or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Right. After having recently done an episode on the poetry of Paul McCartney, we are going to continue our look into the more esoteric elements of the Big Mac's career by finally moving into the realm of dance music. I mean, yes, we've had dance songs like Oué Le Soleil and Atlantic Ocean. We've also done disco tracks like Silly Love Songs and Goodnight Tonight. But how about something that is actually meant to be played in a club? You know, like for young people. A crazy concept for this podcast, I know. But yeah, we're going to be actually looking at a dance music for people to dance to. In theory, anyway. Yes, on this Paul McCartney podcast, we're going to be discussing Strawberries, Oceans, Ships, Forest, the first album by The Fireman. Though, I can hear some of you asking why we're even discussing this artist on a Paul McCartney podcast. Well, I guess you'll just have to wait and find out, won't you? This is set to be a very special episode of the show, as this is unlike any other album we've ever covered. Though, I know all of you are going to enjoy it, as I'm sure everyone listening right now is a hip, sexy young person who enjoys going out dancing all night at clubs and doing ecstasy and drinking excessively and, you know, dancing till the, the, the sun rises over the horizon. You all are that, right? Right? Anyway, now, since there isn't a massive amount of backstory to this album, and because me and my guest get our conversation done and dusted in an unprecedentedly short 90 minutes, I'll be eschewing doing a double episode for this album and instead I will do all the background stuff before then moving on to the live portion of the show where I'll bring on my guest. Now we do discuss quite a bit of said background for the album in said chat and so I've made an effort to keep this first part relatively breezy so not to spend too much time repeating myself. This should be a splendid time guaranteed for all you folks out there. I really enjoyed making this episode and getting to listen to some very different music. Let's see how it goes. Wish me luck. Wish my guest luck. Yada yada yada. But before we can do any of that we first have the matter of the housekeeping. Starting off, what do we have in terms of news for today? <laughs> well, weirdly, folks, we're going to get into the very modern stuff here. A digital version of handwritten notes for the Beatles' hit single, Hey Jude, has sold at an auction for nearly $60,000. Julian Lennon, ever the modern kid, has held an auction of NFTs. What's an NFT, I hear you ask? I still don't quite get it, but they're what's known as non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. Unique digital assets that you have your name on, you have the kind of copyright on, I guess, that can be traded and, you know, used as currency, and these include pictures, art, pieces of music, or even a tweet. Amongst these was the sheet music penned by McCartney for the song Hey Jude, which went for £56,750. Alongside these song notes, there was an assortment of other band memorabilia NFTs being sold, including images of the band's guitars and outfits owned by Lennon. All in all, the sale by Julian's Auctions in California made over £100,000, 
over $150,000 actually. Uh, a percentage of the profits will go to Julian Lennon's White Feather Foundation, which addresses environmental and humanitarian issues around the globe. Josh Katz, the chief executive of Yellow Heart NFT, one of the auction's partners, said, The Lennon Collection is a trailblazing NFT collection that sets the template for how high-end collective memorabilia will use NFTs. Fans are very interested in NFTs of the sought-after physical collectibles. Yet whatever that is, I'm still not quite sure. Pressing on, Ringo Starr has announced a new set of 2022 tour dates with his all-star band. This marks the latest attempt by the Beatles drummer to get on tour on the road following pandemic-imposed cancellations and postponements in both 2020 and 2021. The friends this time include Steve Lukather from Toto, Colin Hay from Men at Work, Warren Ham from Toto, Greg Bisson or Bisonette, uh, who's worked with David Lee Roth, Hamish Stewart, listed in the article that I took this from as being in the average white band, not in Paul McCartney's touring band, which he should be listed as, and Edgar Winter. Very interested to see how that all pans out. I mean, it won't be bad, it won't be good, it'll probably just be the Ringo Starr Live All-Star Band. You know. Next up, Billy Connolly in a recent interview has revealed that he inspired Ringo Starr to give up drinking, but only after the Beatle had watched him quit and checked to see if his spirit went away. Of course, Billy Connolly is a very spirited, uh, enigmatic individual. And after Ringo had seen him sober up and not lose any of his wildness, Ringo decided to take the plunge into sobriety and has been better off ever since. A nice little heartwarming story for us all there. Also, I've actually started collecting Billy Connolly comedy vinyl, so I had to mention this. And finally, folks, we actually have some stats on... Peter Jackson's, the Disney Pluses, blah, blah, blahs, the Beatles get back and how popular it was and what it did for that streaming service. Turns out Disney Plus had drawn in more than 1.8 million new subscribers in its latest quarter with Peter Jackson's documentary drawing in a whopping 209,000 monthly subscribers during its first three days on the platform alone. That is comparable with like a new Marvel release. Like, that's absolutely insane. It still shows the absolute power the Beatles have uh, in terms of drawing in new customers. I, of course, already had a Disney Plus account. So, you know, I'm not just saying 209,000 people watched it. It could be double or even triple that figure because, you know, there are just lots of people who have Disney Plus. What I'm saying is they probably drew in 209,000 newer, specifically older fans and subscribers to their service which is absolutely incredible of course here in the uk disney gives you uh, hulu for free so that would just open up a whole new adult world of content it's very very interesting the fact that the beatles still have this kind of pull love to see it anyway now that we're done with the news let's crack on with the plugs to get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always like reading out any and all correspondence out here on the show. Follow us for daily updates on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. For extra written Paul or nothing content, go and check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, the YouTube is the place where you can check out our sister show, Macca In Your Attic, where me and a guest go through their McCartney slash Beatle 
memorabilia. We've got well over 25 episodes now, so that's hours. That's over, you know, that's over a day's content, folks. So go and check all that out for free. If you want to help out the show directly, though, in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, whether it's on here on the platform you're listening to, whether whether it's on YouTube or any other review site on Spotify, whatever, if you could. Give us a like, a thumbs up, a review, give us a few stars. Whatever you can afford to do would always be appreciated here on Port or Nothing. It gives us that little boost in the unknowable algorithms of the internet. Um, But, you know, we get new listeners every day. Always helps us out. Thank you very much for that. But if you want to help out the show directly, tangibly, not with NFTs, but with real cold hard cash... If you like the show, if you've been enjoying what I've been doing, if you want to see the show grow, if you want to help me keep the lights running, help me get new content to review, new product to review, get different guests on, get new equipment, or maybe you just want to throw a few dollars at my face down the internet just to say thanks, then please consider joining our Patreon page. Of course, it's not just a fund, it's not just a GoFundMe, you do get Two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing completed. You get instant access to all interviews used for Mac in your attic. You get instant access to the video feed. So any episode that I record, especially with a guest, that goes up instantly. Could be days, could be weeks, even months before the episodes actually come out. You get access to all of the scripts, as well as bonus and lost episodes of the show. I also just want to take a quick second to announce that There is some new content on the Patreon page. Yes, folks, I've actually just decided to start making more exclusive content specifically for the Patreon, just to say thank you, because it's done so well recently. Uh, I just wanted to give back a little bit more, say thank you to the loyal fans out there who give something back to the show. And basically, what I've started doing is a new weekly vlog series exclusively for the Patreon. I've got a few ideas lined up for the future. And so if you want even more bonus Paul or Nothing content, especially since there isn't a new episode of Mac in your attic out this week, <laughs> then go and head on over to the Patreon page, subscribe, all that jazz. Even if it's just $1 a month, every little helps. The first episode is going to be on the Half Speed Remaster series of finals. I decided to do that one because I was interested in it, but I didn't think it would be enough content for a week's episode of Paul or Nothing. So, if you want to see me talk about all of my Paul McCartney remastered vinyls, including McCartney One, Ram, Wildlife, Flaming Pie, and apparently some connections to the Let It Be 50th box set, then go and head over to the Patreon page. Of course, I cannot mention the Patreon page without mentioning my wonderful patrons themselves, for whom which this podcast would not be possible. People such as Jack. Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Di Jenkinson, Nancy Toy, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Moji Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Lou Leonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Anna Sejael, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Anyway, folks, now that all of the housekeeping is out of the way, it is time for us to dial either 911 or 999, depending on where in the world you're from, as it is time to contact the fireman. Right, I suppose the best way to start us off here today, here today, is to ask, just who is this fireman fellow anyway? Well, for those of you who haven't worked it out already, the fireman is, of course, one of the many different monikers that Paul McCartney has used throughout the years to hide his identity. 
just like Paul Ramone, uh, Sergeant Pepper, Clint Harrigan, and Percy Thrills Thrillington, our Macca has once again used a pseudonym to slip past our defences unmolested and release even more music than we previously expected. Though, rather interestingly, the singular name of The Fireman is in itself a misnomer, as The Fireman is not one but two firemen instead. As opposed to just Paul hiding his own identity here, this singular name was used for both him and his collaborator, the DJ, producer and musician known as Youth. And when I say it is just these two on this album, I really do mean it, in the way that McCartney and Youth are the only credited artists in the liner notes. Of course, if you know Paul at all by now, you will know that whenever he adopts a new name for a musical project, it's an opportunity to step outside of his own shoes and make some music without the pressure of being Paul McCartney. It allows him to eschew all of his standard music-making practices, to experiment, and to push boundaries in ways that he would never be allowed to do on a regular Paul McCartney album. If you want a specific example, look at the way the fans react to, you know, more out there songs like Tug of Peace and Hey Hey on Pipes of Peace. Anyway, the moniker of the fireman was another useful outlet for Paul, as he had spent so much of his time recently on major, significant, serious projects, and now he's free to cut back and fuck around. Rather like McCartney 2, an album which shares a lot of similar threads with this one. Now, you might be wondering why Paul didn't change his name for his classical music stuff around this period, which is also a topic that we're yet to even cover at all on this podcast. Though, I would argue that in that situation, the commercial appeal of Paul's name and his own existing connections to classical compositions through his own orchestrations, as well as George Martin, along with his own desire to prove that he, he can do classical music, ensured that he was always going to use his real name. With The Fireman, Paul had less to lose, less to prove, and what I also imagine is an important factor, less to do. The fact that the name also applied to youth is also pretty interesting, and it makes you wonder whether he wanted people to know about it. I mean, not when he was discussing the name with Paul on the day, but, you know, perhaps maybe he was a little bit embarrassed in the back of his mind, and he wanted to save some of his street cred for working with Wacky Macca Thumbs Aloft. Maybe that could partially be the case, but I'd also argue that Paul, even during this period, is such a hot commodity to add to your CV that it would only help out your career. So in that sense, he would want to brag about such a partnership. You know, Denny Lane didn't get a writing credit on Wings for several albums, and yet he's doing one collaboration with Paul, and it's their album together. No one's done that. Costello couldn't do that. Eric Stewart couldn't do that. But he did. The other reason that they chose this name uh, was probably equally, if not more interesting... As the story goes, Paul actually wanted to intentionally not make a big deal about this release. Despite being released under Parlophone and Capital Records, aka Paul's two record companies, it was requested by Macca that it have no major press release, no tour, and to have his and youth's involvement not be publicised whatsoever. It was meant to be a secret, low-key release. Youth expands on the idea here. He says... We didn't want the album to be seen as a gimmick, didn't want a big deal over it. Although it wasn't hard for people to gather who was behind it, but we liked the idea that people might discover it accidentally. 
Basically, this was an experiment set up by Paul to see whether his music could indeed appeal to a new, cynical, modern-day youth. Not the guy. <laughs> the youth of the day that seemingly wasn't interested in his music. I guess you could say it was a success and a failure, as the album did manage to be a small dance chart and radio hit here in the UK, which proved that kids do indeed care about the quality of the music alone, not who's involved in it. But it also failed to chart anywhere worldwide uh, on regular charts, which proved that his marquee pull was still needed to do real numbers. Still, several months after the album came out, MPL finally revealed to the music press that McCartney and Youth were indeed the firemen after magazine Melody Maker got the scoop and doxed the band for who they really were. Of course, every non-referent source you read about this name being a big mystery and who the fireman was is somewhat subject to scrutiny, in my opinion. I mean, if the album didn't sell all that well, then who outside of the small subsect of dance fans who bought the album and music critics really cared all that much? Like, the mystery of Percy Thrillington is another one of these. <laughs> Does MPL have cold, hard you know, survey stats about how many people were interested in the firemen, you know, do they have, a, you know, the internet wasn't around then in the same way. So is this just a narrative to help sell the legend of the firemen a little more? I mean, the only advantage I can see in finally revealing who the firemen is would be to hopefully sell a few more albums via the hardcore Paul McCartney fan base. The name of the fireman itself, like so much of what Paul was doing around this time, was an allusion to the Beatles. Now, I never actually got it at first, but the name is a nod to Paul's classic fab tune, Penny Lane, aka the line, And the fireman rushes in. Of course, it's very obvious once you know the answer. But in terms of the whole mystery as to who the fireman was, I would argue that the clue is slightly too obscure to actually be a clue, but if that was the point, then... Well done there, Paul. So, now that we know who the firemen is, who the firemen are, then we should probably discuss who Youth is, right? Real name Martin Glover, Youth is a figure who has been in the background of the music scene for well over ten years by this point in the story, and he had garnered a reputation for being someone who can work in any type of music, in almost any role. Yes, I know it seems a little suspicious that an ageing McCartney during an era of questionable interaction with young people is pairing with a guy called Youth, but once you run through his credits, you will easily be able to connect all the dots and see why he would have been a perfect foil for Paul to work with on this album. Youth first cut his teeth in the world of the kind of hard rock punk industrial scene, producing very non-mainstream acts such as Two Before, Alien Sex Fiend, and Executive Slacks. Though he wasn't just a producer in this field, as he was also a founding member and bass player for the band Killing Joke, which was formed back in 79, with Youth leaving in 82. However, despite such niche underground beginnings, it wouldn't be long before Youth was widely known in the business for much more mainstream production skills, having produced albums for Yaz, Pop Will Eat Itself, Banana Rama, and several artists with single names like James and Zoe. You know, names that are clearly still household ones. I can't find the specific year, but Club Sandwich mentions that he was nominated as producer of the year uh, in the uh, British Music Industry Awards, 
and he even had a 1992 Q magazine article about him titled, Can This Man Save Pop Music? You can't tell me Paul didn't read that. It was also around this time that Youth was doing a shit ton of remix work for a wide variety of artists, and he probably got more work doing this and made more connections doing this than straight up production, because he ended up working with artists like De La Soul, Susie and the Banshees, Cool and the Gang, U2, Erasure, InXS, Faith No More, and Wet Wet Wet, even posthumously remixing a Jimi Hendrix song. Again, something that would really appeal to Paul. And finally, in the early 90s, he also formed a techno and house music duo, Blue Pearl, which he also produced, with American singer Durga McBroom, or Durger, or Durger McBroom, which achieved moderate success. And he was also an ancillary member of The Orb. Begun by killing joke roadie Alex Patterson, The Orb were a highly influential ambient trance dance group that are hailed as popularising the UK house music scene, with an album going to number one in 1992, their second album, which was the height of the scene's success in mainstream. He wasn't a main member or anything, but he was a producer of several tracks on each album and did some help with the mixing. So we have the rock background, including playing the bass, producing mainstream pop acts, doing remixes, and being part of the biggest British house group of the early 90s. Yes, it's all falling into place and makes total sense why Paul would choose this particular fellow. When asked about youth personally, Paul quipped the following... He's a buzzy character, so I was glad when he agreed to do it. Right, so how did this whole project get off the ground then? Well, that pun might be more pertinent than you realise, as the original idea for Paul collaborating with youth was that he was going to come in and create a 12-inch dance remix or a series of 12-inch dance remixes of Hope of Deliverance from Off the Ground. Of course, Paul has always had remixes of his songs, as well as using them as B-sides and alternate singles throughout his career, and so it would make sense that he would want to have some alternative mixes of his work from the latest album. However, Paul was not the biggest fan of overly alternative, you know, like, mixes where the DJ puts their own spin on things, where they add elements and samples from other sources. And rather similarly to the way he did the Unplugged gig, very faithfully by doing it Unplugged, he wanted his remixes to be just that, a remix of everything that was put into that track originally. When discussing this in Club Sandwich number 69, he spoke about what he specifically wanted from this collaboration. Macca said, The brief from me was that we should only use stuff from our recordings, because dance mixes often feature a kick drum sample or a James Brown snare sound, and as a consequence, the record ends up sounding a bit like someone else's. So I told youth that I'd prefer any sound he might select come from our recordings, mainly from off the ground. However, in an act of sheer artistic bravery or rebellion or innovation, or maybe a mixture of all three, youth had different ideas for the sessions. In the same issue of Club Sandwich, number 69, he said, I didn't think it appropriate to remix any of the off-the-ground tracks the way I'd been briefed. I thought it would be better to do a more conceptual thing. That is, rather than remix a track, I thought that we should deconstruct the album into samples and then construct a new mix from those. And Paul liked the idea. He was into it, so I went for it. 
Now, you might argue that youth may have listened to the off-the-ground tapes and found them to be as mediocre as the rest of the world did at that time, and that he actually wanted to be so abstract that they would no longer sound like off-the-ground material. Or you could also make the point that since they were doing a dance remix, that Off The Ground is simply an album full of unusable content for that context. And so for them to stick to Paul's brief and only use that material, he, he was going to have to get pretty fucking abstract to get anything out of it. Either way, the result is something unlike any other McCartney product on the market, still to this day, really. And that uniqueness would end up being a major factor in being able to hide the fact that it was Paul in the first place, as well as being a major selling point here in the present day. What's most interesting about this process, though, is, well, the fact that you can't really tell that any of it was taken from off the ground. You really wouldn't be able to recognise that fact without someone telling you prior. In fact, this exact sentiment was brought up in a review by Iman Lababedi for the New York City Rock.com, a sample of which reads, If it is using off the ground as ground zero for these samples, it isn't doing so in such a way that I can tell. And that probably played right into the concept of the fireman's hands. The fact that youth deconstructed the album in such a way that it was completely unrecognisable did give that air of mystery that they were looking for. Like, if it was full of stuff where you could tell, like, oh, you know, that's the jing da jing da jing jing da jing jing or, like, you know, or... Like, if he had done any of that, there'd be no mystery as to who the farm was. It would just clearly be a remix of Off the Ground. And, you know, I'm so glad youth took that chance because... It was never going to really be a chance. Paul is always up for kind of heady, out-there stuff like that. And I can only imagine how excited he was. Anyway, on to the actual making of the album. The recording sessions for Strawberry's Ocean Ships Forest took place from the 7th of October to the 10th of October, 1992, just weeks before I was born. Youth and his team, engineer Chris Potter and programmer Matt Austin, took over Paul's studio for around four days with the first day being spent reviewing all of the available tapes. And on the second day, youth invited Paul to join in on the fun, with the remaining other days basically just being the compilation of the album. When speaking of goofing around with Paul, youth said the following, He only had around four or five hours to spare, so we just had a laugh. I got him to play a bit of banjo, a bit of Bill Black's original stand-up bass from Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel session, he played some flute things and did some whispering, and I just sampled it all up. My god, are we ever going to escape this Bill Black upright bass? Fuck me. Anyway, it seems that Paul equally had a great time on his end too, saying, It was great fun, because normally these are the bits that producers try and get me to shut up about. They usually say, stop messing around, Paul, sing the song properly. But youth wanted all the messing around. It was an interesting release for me. Apart from the especially recorded material, Youth used some vocal sections from Cosmically Conscious, a sadly non-specified bass riff from one of the off-the-ground tracks, which is apparently playing more or less throughout the entire album, as well as recording of the poetry and readings issued on the broadcast and reception uh, from Wings Back to the Egg album, with Youth finding those vocal samples on Paul's studio Chamberlain. Uh, an early Fairlight synthesizer. 
So, cut to the longest session of the entire recording process, which was October the 11th, and this is where Youth starts putting the whole thing together, making nine different mixes of the same track using the same elements. The purpose of this was to find the best one, see which one Paul liked the most, and either edit some of the other samples from others into another song, you know, transpose them, mix and match, um, maybe just create one song, or at most, you know, create a couple of songs with some B-side material. But, and this is where fate steps in, Paul enjoyed the results so much that he decided to release them as a single album, as youth details here. I put all the ingredients together. I told Paul I was going to mix it on the last night and suggested he pop down to have a look. So, he came down with Linda and the children after attending the opening of Linda's photographic exhibition in Bath, and they all really got into what we were doing. Paul was blown away because he was hearing his album in a totally new context. He also saw how we mixed, using the desk as an instrument and playing the desk. After I'd done one mix, he asked, Is that it? I said, No, we're going to do a lot. He ended up staying until about four in the morning and totally got into it. It was a very special night. He continues, I was planning to edit them into one single mix, but Paul said he wanted them as an album. I had slight reservations because if I had known it was going to be an album, I would have done them slightly differently. As a bunch of 12-inch mixes, they're excellent, very spontaneous. And though I don't want to get bogged down in the dogma of conceptual music, they have a charming naivete. But to be honest, as an album, it may fall a little short. But all due respect to Paul, though, he felt it was valid as an album and was saying, I don't care. I think it's great. I want it like this. He didn't want anything changed, not even the titles that I gave each mix on the night. I wasn't really thinking too much about them. They also came spontaneously. It was a full moon that night, so I was getting quite esoteric. Trans-spiritual stomp had a kind of pagan feel. I can imagine a caveman kicking up the dust to it. And Sunrise Mix was the last one of the night, done as the sun was literally creeping over the horizon. When speaking of what he thought of the end result, Paul was oddly honest about the limitations of the project, whilst also in his very own Macca way, defending why it exists in the first place. A.K.A. because he bloody well likes it, that's why. He said, I like it very much as a record, and I think Youth did very good work on it. Even though we didn't realise we were making an album, and it's all really the same track remixed nine times. But it was good fun, and we kept our integrity, because although the sounds were speeded up, slowed down or whatever, it's still us. The ingredients of the fireman are still us. Not everybody will enjoy it, and I admit that your taste has to be in that direction for you to enjoy it, but I really like the record, and I think it's a really interesting album. Despite being recorded in mid-1992, Strawberry's Ocean Ships Forest was released around a year after it was finished in order to let Off the Ground and the New World Tour to percolate a little and to not saturate the market. So, it was eventually released on Parlophone in the UK on the 15th of November 1993 and on Capitol Records in the US on the 14th of February 1994. Transpiritual Stomp was released as a 12-inch single with Arizona Light now being oddly retitled to Arizona Light Mix as the B-side. Again, as I mentioned earlier, none of this charted in any way in any major country 
and only from second-hand accounts do we hear that it was a radio hit and a dance hit here in the UK. It's not like Standing Stone, where that still topped the like classical charts for six weeks. You know, this is a proper obscure release. And it should be noted that to keep up with the illusion that there was little studio backing behind this album, there were no music videos to accompany this, no posters, Paul and Youth did no promotional press or interviews, and I imagine radio stations weren't even sent a promo copy, as I can't find any existence of such promos. Now, before we move on, we do have to point out that the original brief for a dance remix of Hope of Deliverance was still fulfilled, just not by Youth. Yeah... Paul ended up roping in another DJ remixer called Steve Anderson to basically do what Youth was too brave and brilliant not to do, which was to create a dance remix of Hope of Deliverance to be released as a 12-inch single. And you know what? That's exactly what Steve Anderson did, resulting in Deliverance and Deliverance dub mix. Now, it was released on the same day as Hope of Deliverance proper, aka December 28th, 1992, but not in the way that you might imagine. And, rather like Strawberry's Ocean Ship's Forest, it received no promotion from anyone in Paul's camp. Though, eventually, it became quite a hit and did the rounds. As detailed in this press release from January 13th, 1993, Macca has a secret house dance hit. Paul McCartney came clean today and revealed that He's the unlikely mystery man behind the new dance rave, Deliverance, that has shot straight into the top ten club charts. For the past two weeks, club ravers all over Britain have been asking, who wrote Deliverance? The house sensation is now riding at number nine in the national DMC dance chart. Thousands of clubbers were doubly frustrated to learn that the secret hit wasn't even available in record shops. But today, Macca admitted the mystery song was his all along. And although he originally only released it to club DJs for fun, public demand from the dance floors has now forced his record company, EMI Parlophone, to allow Deliverance to go on sale from Friday, January 15th. Rumours had spread through the clubs that Deliverance was the work of a house band based in Brixton. Other gossip had it that the song had emerged out of Manchester's ultra-hip hit factory, The Hacienda. But Paul admitted, it was me. Deliverance, a house dub track inspired by McCartney's new single Hope of Deliverance, was mixed by hitmaker Steve Anderson in a revolutionary new way. Instead of merely remixing the single, Anderson made the song by taking samples of the 12 songs on McCartney's forthcoming new album, Off the Ground, and mixing them together. But the result was so unlike anything Paul has ever done before that no one guessed the former Beatle was behind it. Deliverance was given rave reviews by Pete Tong, the Radio 1 DJ, and disc jockeys in clubs all over the country voted it as a big house hit. Reviewing the record, Graham Park, the influential and trend-setting dance DJ at Manchester's Hacienda Club, dubbed it a housed-up monster of groove, absolutely huge regardless of who is behind it. Paul said, I know this song is unlike what people would usually expect from me, but I enjoy a good boogie as much as anybody, and I didn't want to ignore the dance audiences. Originally it was a bit of a laugh, just something for the clubs, and we kept the name off it, but it seems to have gone down well in the clubs, but people have urged me to put it out on release. I'm really pleased with what Steve Anderson has done with the song, which just gives a nod to hope of deliverance. I'm especially pleased with it, because apparently it's the first time that anyone has mixed a song this way, says Steve Anderson, 
The idea of making a track from sourcing all the songs on an album is a totally new concept. I've never done it before, and I've never heard of anyone else doing it either. Paul gave me license to do what I wanted, and I've been overwhelmed by the response. I'm relieved that Paul's finally releasing Deliverance, because so many people have now heard it and asked me, where the hell can I get a copy? So yeah, after being originally released anonymously on a 12-inch promo disc to Club DJs, uh, it was finally released as a proper 12-inch single, which also included Hope of Deliverance as one of the B-sides. And on top of that, both mixes were also the B-side for the Come On People EP. Very good indeed. But, oh my God, folks, the parallels between this release and The Fireman are staggering, with both of them being remixed from the entirety of the album. Yes, Anderson's one didn't break it down as much as Youth did, but still very similar. They were both low-key releases and supposed hits with the youth of the day without them even knowing it was Paul in the first place. Now, whilst the Deliverance mixes by Anderson were clearly far more successful at the time, they have since gone on to become far more dated as products of the early 90s. I still quite like listening to them. I have them on in the background, but they are what they are. Whereas Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest, whether you like it or not, has proven to be far more interesting and timeless. Still, what this proves is that Paul always has far more irons in the fire than you ever might first expect. And just because he's doing a remix with you on a song, you should never assume that you are the only one. But don't worry, folks. I'm sure Youth wasn't too heartbroken by this duplicity. He probably even knew about it. But he also did go on to do two more albums as the fireman with Paul and even appeared on Paul's Liverpool Sound collage. So I think I know who I'd rather be. Pressing on, and we now come to the section that I always used to forget about in some of the early episodes of the show, which is, of course, a discussion about the album cover. And the album cover for Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest is incredibly simple, yet bravely bold, sporting an entirely Ferrari red background. And that is it. It's literally just a red album. Like, if you thought the Beatles' red album was red, well, then you haven't seen anything here, sister. Because this is as red as a left-wing university political club member before they graduate and start earning a decent wage. The same is true for the rear cover also. I personally love this though, as it has the exact kind of eye-catching, what the heck is this, pick-up ability that a smaller release like this needs. Again, as I always say, if it gets the passerby to stop and pick it up, then it's done more than half the job. The particular red they use is just so striking and it really gives the album a kind of urgency and sense of danger that really works in its favour. What's also interesting is the typography of the title. Typically albums are proud to display their title front and centre, whereas here, with Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest, the pickup ability theme is carried on as the title on the front cover is offset massively to the right, to the point whereby the whole word is obscured and the only letters of the title you can read are strawberry. And so, if your natural curiosity makes you want to know the end of the title, again, not only do you have to pick up the album, but you also have to turn it over. Fucking genius, if you ask me. Now, something I didn't know about until today, the day of recording, was that 
apparently there is a rare alternative cover to this album. I've never seen a hard copy of it. I've only seen images on one website. And this is a version of the album where the front is red and the rear of it is green, with two-thirds of the cover being taken up by these kind of classic uh, images from old 50s drug PSAs. They are really cute and retro and nostalgic, and they're a great middle finger to the establishment, with one picture being what is quite clearly Jesus holding aloft a bottle of LSD, and it really plays into the whole youth culture, druggy nature of the album. I don't know if these were ever released or if it was a super limited release, but what I can gather is that they are American in origin. Go check out the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter. I'll be putting images of them up there. Okay, folks, before we go into the live section of the show where me and my guest get to espouse our own hot takes uninterrupted for 90 minutes, it is time for us to look at some other critical opinions on this album. And of course, we're going to begin with the more quote-unquote credible sources. And it's clear from these sections that I found that the intelligentsia of music criticism was clearly still willing to meet McCartney halfway, at least conceptually. Let's begin. Gillian G. Gar in Rolling Stone on June 14th, 1994, wrote, Together, the team has concocted an appealing collection of nine variations on a musical theme, set to a techno dance beat. Anyone expecting a typical McCartney album will be disappointed. Strawberry's Ocean Ship's Forest has no lyrics, aside from the occasional sampled word, and the differences between the tracks are slight on a first listen. But, as a dance record, its strengths are undeniable. The droning wail of guitars and keyboards give the music an exotic tinge, conjuring up images of a late-night stroll through the Casbah. The innumerable samples also enliven the mix. A raver on the dance floor isn't going to care who created the music, which is entirely the point. This isn't meant to be a chart contender. It's more of an opportunity for McCartney to indulge in some musical experimentation. Michael Bonner in Melody Maker, on an unknown date because no one fucking cites online sources anymore, wrote, Paul McCartney has discovered dance music and the results are as staggeringly brilliant as those that came from John Lydon's similar Road to Damascus-like conversion last year. Truly, we live in an age of miracles. Eschewing the easy option of making a remix album, McCartney and his collaborator Youth have chosen to follow the likes of Brian Eno down a more experimental and cerebral path. They take a melody and, with dexterous genre-hopping through ambient trance and house, evolve a number of breathtaking variations. Like Snowflakes, each song seems identical to the last, until closer inspection reveals that it has its own unique shape. John Bush, in All Music Guide to Electronica, the definitive guide to electronic music, wrote, Almost as surprising as the fact that Paul McCartney and Youth were participating in an ambient house project was the fact that the Fireman's debut LP succeeds on most accounts. Though it is difficult to judge the level of McCartney's input, most tracks are quite melodic, and the samples or effects often give the feel of a regular framework. Overall, it may just be a bit too tame for fans of Youth or The Orb, but it'll please more than a few Beatle fans. Major musical aggregate site AllMusic.com wrote, The one flaw with this album is that, 
Since all of the tracks have the same source material, they all sound more alike than they might otherwise. The tracks are solid ambient dance material, with beats and wisps of melody swirling all around each other without ever quite coalescing into a recognisable tune, but there's a little too much sameness about the album for Strawberry Ocean Ships Forest to really hold together as an album the way that, say, the Orbs material does. The much more varied 1998 follow-up Rushes would be a far superior release. Iman Lababedi, who we quoted earlier for nycrock.com, wrote, What it also shows is something that's a little difficult for McCartney. From classical to ambient, trance to synth-pop, and of course hip-hop, McCartney is a true renaissance man. He really is in it for the music, and that truism is reflected on everything from Eleanor Rigby to Wild Honey Pie. His love of sound isn't simply getting where Lennon was 20 years before. McCartney, for all his middle-class business ethos, can be a risk-taker if the music takes him there. Now, let's have a look at some regular reviews and... Let's see if the fans of this music are the same people who were supposedly buying the album back in the early 90s whilst doing ecstasy and sweatily dancing the night away or whether they're stuffy, sitting-down music fans who just want Paul to focus on rock and roll. User RemTW from RateYourMusic.com says You really could stop the CD player after the first track finishes because at that point you've pretty much heard the entire album. There's no need to carry on from here. I'm willing to give it a fair amount of slack because, in truth, I didn't hate the beat and I was willing to ride it out for at least half an hour. But, at the same time, I'd be lying if I said that this album was worth your time. It's a monotonous curiosity for the dedicated and nothing more. User Freddy from RateYourMusic.com said, When Paul McCartney starts experimenting, it usually turns out good. This is no exception, despite its ridiculously low rating. Here, Paul also receives some help from youth. It is definitely a little repetitive, but it's alright. All I can say is that I love these dance trance experiments. It still has variation, but with an underlying theme throughout, of course. These tracks supply an escape from reality for about 70 minutes, just enjoying the hypnotic music flowing from the speakers. User Reginod from RateYourMusic.com said, For Sir Paul, this thing is a welcome step outside the box, and try something completely different. That occasional philosophy has led to attempts at neoclassical, quasi-opera, sound collages, raw and raucous rock and roll, and more. In this case, it was pulsating ambient music, suitable for shaking by attractive young women with large, round rumps. Jesus Christ, what, what a review. This is probably the least interesting of the three to date, farm and projects, but it's still pretty good, even if it's essentially the same idea repeated over nine tracks spanning almost 80 minutes. Yeah, in a a rather weird reversal of affairs, clearly the fanbase was not as charitable towards this album as the critics were, which is fun for me to see, as it only reinforces the fans' viewpoint that that the critics always get it wrong, and the critics' viewpoint that the fans don't have the educational qualities to quote-unquote get more supposedly complex music. Oh, and before I go, here's a couple of quick quips that I couldn't not include. David Brown in Entertainment Weekly wrote... Leave it to Macca to devise the first techno for elevators. And finally, the GOAT, Robert Christgau wrote for his website, Riff and Variations, or Techno for Seniors. Right, folks, now that we're done with all that, it is time for us to get on with the real show. And with that in mind, let's just get on with it.
Okay, folks, we are now live. We are here to discuss Strawberries, Ocean, Ships, Forest. We are Legion, and we are once again we, as I am joined by my best friend and the reason I got into this awful podcasting game in the first place. Currently, you can hear him as the host of The Royal Ramble, a passion pod about the UK's second best sitcom, The Royal Family. And even more currently, you can hear him as the guest on this show. Everyone, please welcome back my main man, Tom Quee. What's going on, brother? Hey, Sam. Hey, Paul or nothing. Always great to be on here. You know, it's every like 18 months or so that I come back. People know the history. We used to do the Tom Wakes podcast and stuff like that. But what have we done in the past? I was trying to remember. Obviously, there's the infamous Wings Over America episode that I was so critical that it corrupted the hard drive. Um, yeah, that, 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 that was unbelievable. I stand by my thoughts, by the way. I don't mean to get off on the wrong foot with you listeners, hating instantly on Wings Over America. But we've had some really good episodes as well. Yeah, no, we um, did um, The Family to- Way. Family way, dude. I forgot about that until today. I was like, what, yeah, what that was, was a good like, one. Oh, shit. Uh, we did that pop quiz bonus episode where you found a Beatles quiz oh, tri- yeah. trivia book. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that one. Um, uh, McCartney 2, as you just said, yeah. Uh, which obviously episode. is, uh, love that album. And kind of, you know, got a little bit of lineage, a little bit of DNA with this record. Uh, obviously, we saw McCartney as well, December 16th, 2018. So we freshen up tour, yeah. That was yeah. Insane. So we reviewed that as well. Also, that's it. Is there another no, one? There's another one. Uh, you were there when uh, the opening single for Egypt Station came out, which was oh, I Don't Know right. and Come On to Me. Uh, that's right. Two songs the, I can't the imagine. The Me Too yeah. anthem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've definitely not listened to them either since, I imagine. Uh, so I can't even, I remember hating on, what's the other one that's not come on to me? I've got the name. I don't know. know, Yeah. Dogs at my window. Dogs at my door. Yeah, it's terrible. No, I'm very much on the McCartney free train in, in, in the recent releases. Uh, I'm not in the Egypt station as it were. Yeah. You've definitely left that quote unquote platform. Um, but yeah, uh, I was very surprised that you, you even put your name in the hat for this episode. So, and I know you've got mm. a, bit of, a bit of history with the fireman. So, can you tell me how you first came across this moniker? Yeah, it was it was through a Mojo review, um, Mojo mm. magazine, a magazine that I've subscribed to for years now. I'm sure many people are aware of it, UK magazine that weirdly is like referencing Gilmore Girls and and Pearl Jam. I didn't realize it was kind of this monolith of journalism. But anyway, anyone that's read Mojo knows that they have their kind of main album reviews that normally do about 10, 15 pages of releases. And then on the side, they'll often have like a sort of sidebar that's just genre specific. So it'll be like electronica or country or hip hop or, or anything like that. And uh, this album just this album cover just caught my eye. Uh, this being the um, Electric Arguments, which I think is the latest Fireman release. The right? third one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that like 2012, eight, something around it's that time? pre-2010. I'm just on the Spotify, 2008, 2008. So, um, God, this must have been, a, this is, fuck, this was a long time ago then. So I would have been still at secondary school when I heard about this album. So, because I was, I've been into the Beatles for a few years at this point, and uh, I remember seeing the, just literally just electric arguments, I just saw the cover, which looks like a nice kind of Basquiat emoji, and it kind of kind of caught my eyes that way. And I was just reading the review, and it was like, oh, this sounds good. And then literally, like, the final thing they say is, and, you know, Paul McCartney. And I was like, what? I was like, what? <laughs> Paul, Paul has this alter ego. I mean, obviously, we've known him to have these alter egos, like, you know, Frillington and Sergeant Pepper, et cetera, and kind of Granny Paul or whatever. But I didn't know that. He, and I knew, obviously, I knew that he was an experimental dude, and he was, you know, the avant-garde Beatle beyond any of the rest of them in many ways. But I didn't know that he was a bloody, you know, had this thing going on. I didn't know even this was his third release, you know, is what they said in the review. So that was just, 
I mean, that just lit lit fire to my soul. Like I was just, you know, I, I was so excited that Paul was kind of doing this sort of music. And I don't think I even listened to it. I think years went by. I think I, I just stored that in my in my brain that okay, there's the fireman, it's Paul, da 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 da. But it was only years later that I sort of dug into the music. I don't think anything particularly. I think I must have listened to Electric Arguments, but I don't think anything particularly kind of resonated with me. It didn't go into any playlist or anything like that. But I, yeah, I'd always been aware that Paul had you know gone off the Beatle track, as it were. And um, you know that's the kind of episodes we like to do, really, like when we did um, the Family Way and whatever, and you, you know stuff that's a little bit in, more in the obscura. So. Um, so yeah, that was the impetus for it, really. I just, I just, I felt that it was, um, it was something worthy of exploring that I know you hadn't touched upon until this point. Yeah, I mean, let's just talk about the main collaborator, Youth. Um, I, I mean, you're a little more well, well versed than me in wider music. Are you a fan mm. of Killing Joke? Do you know much of his, of his other work? Not especially. I know the band, and I know that um, Metallica actually. Well, I do used to do a Metallica podcast. They've covered uh, the weight which is a Killing Joke song, which is an excellent cover, excellent song as well. Um, Certainly doesn't share any kind of DNA or ancestry with any of the songs that we hear on this record or beyond. But not, I wasn't, no, I can't can't say that he was one of these people that I kind of, you know, knew the back catalogue of or anything like that. Yeah, I had the debut album of theirs on today, and it's it's night and day, it really is. It's so strange that this guy who is mostly known for, like, pop production and well they're like a punky sort of yeah yeah they're very punky um it's 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 heavy music um i mean i was just going through some of youth's other projects that he's worked on and it's more varied than you might think he did a a remix of mob scene by marilyn manson which uh, caught caught my eye he did he remixed night and day for you too as well as Remixes for Susie the Banshees, De La Soul, Wet, 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 Bananarama. Like, I thought Bross was going to be there on that list at this point, but um, one of his first production jobs was for an outfit called Alien Sex Fiend, which I think is a fantastic name. He also produced Naomi Campbell's one and only album, which uh, I think speaks oh. for itself. Um, he also, <laughs> this really shocked me. He produced songs six and nine on the Tower of London's first album, one of the very worst Yo, albums to come word, out word, of the to, UK. word to my guy Donny. Word to my guy Donny. <laughs> I'm a rat, I'm a rat, I'm a rat. Oh my god, it's so look bad. any any CBB fans, celebrity big brother fans, remember his notorious run on that show. Yeah, or uh, uh Nevermind the Buzzcocks fans as well. Yes. Back to the fireman though. What do you think of the name? Is that a particularly evocative one for you? Did you get the Penny Lane callback? Um, no, I mean, no, it wasn't, wasn't obvious to me, but it feels very in that mode of this kind of trancey music where the name is often quite subtle and androgynous. Like, I don't think they're ever, they didn't call themselves the firemen. Obviously there is the, um, you know, the reference with the penny lane, but I don't think they're ever like, oh, you know, it's incendiary music or, you know (laughs) what I mean? Or we're kind of part of the establishment and we serve. And I think it's a bit like, you know, um, a band that I'm going to probably draw a lot of comparisons through um, in this episode is a band called The Field, a band that I'm obsessed with and a band that do very similar music to this, very meditative, transcendental, um, droney music, although theirs is far, far more engaging than, than this first record. But again, The Field, like that that doesn't really have anything on it. Like what, was, what did you say before? Alien Sex Fiend. I kind of disagree with you. I think that name's actually kind of lame, but at least it's <laughs> evocative, you know. At least it means something in a certain way, at least it will elicit reaction. The Fireman... I don't know. It, it's not interesting. It's not. It's not firemen, is it? It's fireman. No. So it's kind of the 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 inference is towards a collaboration, which I like. 
Yeah, um, obviously we know Paul, as we as you mentioned earlier, has decided to drop his name uh, for multiple projects in 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 his uh, oeuvre, as it were. But is this a case where it's more of a Percy Thrillington gimmick, or would you say that this is more of a Sergeant Pepper musical freedom kind of decision? I don't. I I, I just don't think musical like that sort of identity freedom can exist for Paul because he's a bloody beetle. You know what I mean? It's like J.K. Rowling. You don't need to be Robert Galbraith. Like, like, it's just you, you are beyond whoever you are. So yeah, I understand that he had put it this way. And I don't really know the history of, was it a mystery early on? Did people well, not know yeah, it was Paul? Supposedly, like, you. Right. it's one of those things you read about a lot. It's like, um, there was a mystery as to who the fireman was. But, you know, Apple pretty much, uh, or NPL pretty much confirmed it the moment people started to ask anyway. Yeah. Paul had already been uh, experimenting with uh, remixes of the off-the-ground material with the Deliverance and Deliverance dub mix. So I don't think it was the hardest mystery to solve. You know, it's not like the Maltese Falcon or anything like that. No, no. And, you know, we can't rule out the possibility that this name is also about youth saving a bit of his street cred for having worked with McCartney kind of pre-anthology, pre-Flaming Pie before he really kind of got his name back again. So... yeah. There's definitely an element of that. We've also got the title of the album as well, Strawberries, Oceans, Ships, Forest. This is just random word association. Right? It's Dadaistic, could... but I mean, strawberries are, you know, kind of the beetle fruit, aren't they, really? You can't like, not, you, know... you can't not yeah. say the word strawberries. Like, they might, they might call it strawberries, Jude, get and pony, you know what I mean? Like... I know. I was trying to, like, deduce, is it some sort of acronym? Because there's an SOS in there, SOSF. Uh, but I don't, yeah, it just seems like some weird amalgam. And the cover as well is interesting. Just with, yeah. Well, it's red with the word strawberry in the top right, just slightly cut off. So I'm not sure what the back is. Maybe it goes over. But the sort of the white of the font against the red of the cover kind of evokes a strawberry and the seeds as well, which is quite nice. And red seems to be a dominant colour, probably because of the fireman, you know, but all, all three of their album covers have a lot of red. Yeah, uh, obviously you've got the Beatles Red album as well, so you know maybe that was a potential little clue for people as well. Um, Blue Rose Speedway. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> of course, we review anything on this podcast, anything to do with McCartney, no matter how, how tangential. But I mean, I've, I've heard the Grand Dude episode, bro, <laughs> so I, I'd argue that Grand is more of a McCartney project than this one. I mean, would- oh god, I mean, undeniably, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah undeni- I mean, I can't argue with that, yeah. Is it fair to call this maybe like youth with Paul McCartney rather than youth and Paul McCartney or Paul McCartney and youth? I think so. I think so. Kind of like the executive production there falls more on youth because I have dug into rushes and electric arguments earlier and they are more fully fledged kind of them working together, them charting new courses. Whereas from what I gather, this is essentially off the ground sticks and stems, right? Yeah, so essentially Paul wanted them to be these 12-inch remixes of the original Off the Ground album using obvious samples. So, you know, like, hop off the lever and slow, just some weird um, augmentation to it. But Mm -hmm. then Youth was like, no, no, let's break it the more down to the most fundamental level. So we'll just take the, you know, a bass line here, a drum line here and twist them and augment them into different shapes. McCartney kind of gets the taste of it, ends up staying till 4 a.m. in the morning with him. And it goes from a bunch of 12 inches to maybe an EP to now a full-fledged album. 
Uh, I know that you're not as absorbed in Off the Ground, one of McCartney's lesser albums, but did, no. did, did you notice anything prototypically McCartney-esque in any of the samples across this album? Not especially. I, we'll get to it. One of the vocal breaks sounded like George Martin to me. I, oh, I, don't, no, I see, don't know whether that... No, there's, there's a vocal to me that sounds like Ringo, you know, they're getting it on. Like, to me, that's... Yeah. Yeah, that kind of beautiful night, Ringo. It's very like a Rorschach test kind of record where you sort of <laughs> see yourselves in, are you a strawberry or an ocean? You know, are you a forest? Maybe you're a ship. So no, not really. Like, you know, there is that kind of heavy guitar motif here and there that comes through. But even that doesn't sound very McCartney to me, you know. Um, so so, so no, I, I have to say no. There was, there was no kind of little bits and bobs, little, you know, spits and flecks. I was like, okay, yeah, this is clearly from the pen of, you know, Mr. McCartney. Like, he didn't, he didn't, there was not, there's very little trace of him in this record. Yeah, something I've, I've, I've heard offhand on um, public review sites is like, the first album's like Youth with McCartney. The second album, Rushes, is very much a 50-50 split. And then Electric Arguments, which has brand new, like, McCartney lyrics in it and stuff, like Sing the Changes, that's more McCartney with youth. So there's definitely going to be an evolution with this. With these yeah, yeah, and uh, Sing the Changes. I'm just on the Fireman's uh, Spotify page now. 11,000 monthly listeners, which isn't bad still. Um, and it's got a photo of them both, which is quite cool, as the profile next to each other. But Sing the Changes, 1.2 million streams, uh, as in most popular, and the rest of them are from Electric Arguments, like, you know, mm-hmm. 90K, something like that. But yeah, I'll have to listen to that one properly because clearly that's the sort of breakout. The only thing breaking the top 10 is Transpiritual Stomp, which is obviously the opening of the record, which goes to show that people <laughs> listen to that one and not the rest of it. And that's got uh, 42K, 42K streams. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you know what? We're probably going to touch on this several times, but is it a trite, gimmicky statement to say that this album is essentially just one big song? No. Absolutely not. Essentially, what you can do with this record is you can set up a, imagine you're like a bird watch or it's bingo or something like that. Yeah. And there's basically about, there's about 10 to 15 motifs, whether like they motifs, be vocal yeah. samples, you know, whether they be the guitar riff that I mentioned before, whether they be like this kind of, this warbling synth. And you just hear them in different orders in each song, essentially. But each song has the same pulse. It has the same tempo. It has the same momentum. You know, some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. But the shortest track on the record is 7 minutes 36. There's two that are 8 minutes 41, interestingly. But they basically hover around that mark, about 8 eight minutes or so, 9 minutes, you know, something like that. And, and no, they are, you know, the changes are real infestimal, like they're real academic changes. Like, you know, it doesn't feel like, you know, what, as you know, one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters is, is Ben Folds. And Ben Folds, upon the release of Way to Normal uh, from 2008, he released all the sticks and stems, gave them out for free, said remix them fans however oh. you want. And there's a whole remix record and it is unbelievable because it is people just taking a bit of melody here, maybe this riff here, and then just going off on their merry way with it. Whereas here, it feels like youth has just got, let's let's say Transpiritual Stomp is like the earth text. It's kind of the original song. And from there, he's just twiddling a knob here and, and throwing a little sample in there. But it never deviates from that. So, so no, I don't think it's trite. I think it's pretty accurate, really, that people know what they're getting into when they listen to this. Yeah, there's um, Michael Bonner in Melody Maker at the time wrote, like Snowflakes, each song seems identical to the last until closer inspection reveals that it has its own unique shape. I think that's even too generous, really. I I think that's fair-ish. There are differences in each song. There are 
none of them are exactly identical, but yeah, it's not like, wow, there's a key change here. There's nothing sort of, you know, really momentous. Yeah, like one of the things that I was looking into in kind of preparation for this episode is the idea that there are major differences to, to you know the real hardcore jumpy up and down fans between ambient, trance and house. I mean, do you know any of these differences to hand? I've got them written here. I mean, yeah, there's... there's- uh, not, not, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'll be able to put it in a, in a better way than me if you got the notes. But, but yeah, I mean, ambient to me at least is is more ethereal, not mm-hmm. grounded, more background. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of people like, um, you know, uh, your kind of uh, Brian Eno's and Roger Eno's, etc., and Ruchi Sakamoto if you're going overseas. And then house and trance is meant to be is more of a communal thing, isn't it? One's more interior, one's more exterior. That's more of a kind of public, you know, kind of commune. House is music that can be characterised by a steady four-to-the-floor beat that ranges at about 180 to 130 beats per minute. Like disco, it's driven by a prominent kick drum and relies heavily on samples. Ambient is mid-tempo. It's got a lot of synth pads and strings, roaring vocal samples, used in a dreamier, more atmospheric fashion, so it's pretty similar to what you said there. And trance music is characterised by a tempo line between 125 to 150 beats per minute with repeating melodic phrases and in musical form that distinctly builds tension and elements throughout each track with one or two peaks or drops. I kind of feel like all of those descriptions could apply to every single song yeah. on this yeah, album. Yeah, it, 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 it is definitely a kind of melting pot of those things, but never, it's it's a little tame though for all of those genres, I've got to be honest with you. Like there's nothing reinventing the wheel here. And I don't think that... F- the hardcore fans of any of those genres at the time or now would find much of worth here. Like, I, I don't, I, I don't know if any of these songs are actually, you know, I've listened to this album a hell of a lot, you know, and like, you know, I said on my own Metallica podcast, there's what I called the bounce theory, which is when I was a kid, I didn't have many albums on my iPod. I had one of the ones I had was Bon Jovi's post nine 11 album bounce from 2002. <laughs> it's terrible, but I really, I love it because I listen to it so much. I can't get enough of it. Even though I, I know that it's bad. But this stuff, I don't know. There's no Stockholm Syndrome going on here. It's just a little drab. It's like when you go on Garage Band and you have those default songs. It just feels very much like royalty-free YouTube background shit. Like, Yeah, definitely. There's there's um, a really funny review on RateYourMusic.com, one, one of the very best sites out there for getting people's hot takes on this. And it reads, a note about the tempo. No one's going to burn up the dance floor with this music on. It's a simmer or a stroll rather than a sprint dance music for the middle-aged. And of course, McCartney's uh, just turning 50 around around this point. Probably not the best arbiter to be like determining what's really danceable no. at, at this but it's, point. But it's youth, I think, that he he probably wasn't there kind of dictating those things. But, but no, that's a fair comment. And the Deliverance dub remix um, that you sent me before, that's way dancier, isn't it? Yeah. That, like, that, that, that's fun. Like Yeah, those were Steve Anderson's remixes of actual... Well, they're basically what youth was originally going to be doing, you know, taking the original samples from the off the ground sessions and remixing them into an actual dance song. And they are both literally something that you could put on in I in Ibiza or at Burnham mm-hmm. to some lazy Hacienda kind of yeah. Yeah. And and the samples are better in it as well, the vocal samples, like the female samples. And there's that nice vocal break in the middle as well. Like yeah. it's far more transcendent and stompy than transcendental stomp, you know. <laughs> Um, Youth even mentions that um, as a bunch of 12-inch remi- uh, mixes, they are very excellent and spontaneous. 
though I don't want to get down bogged in the dogma of conceptual music. They have a charming naivete. But to be honest, as an album, it may fall a little short. I mean, how portentous a review is that? Like, Mm. he's pretty much coming out quite honestly and saying, perhaps Paul, I'm not going to say ruined it, but maybe produced it for the worse with the idea to make it into an album. And that's definitely something we'll uh, touch on as well. I mean, I'm I'm kind of impressed that this exists. Like, this is a nice uh, yeah, album to compare, like, say, with McCartney 3 Reimagined that we had last year, which was a much more traditional yes. remix album. You know, you had St. Vincent on there. You had Damon Albarn. Like, it was a much more in-your-face, we're just going to rejig these songs a bit. I mean, I love that album. I play it loads. I still listen to it very regularly. I find it quite underwhelming, compared to this one, even though the concept of Strawberries, Ocean Ships, Forest is far more intriguing and engaging. But, you know, on this podcast, we talk all the time about songs and albums that are more interesting than they are enjoyable. And that's yeah. my that's my main thesis for this, really. Is this just another one of those situations where it's like, this is a great album to write an essay about or do a TED talk about, but is it something that you're really going to throw on? No, it's not that fun to listen to. It is nice to just have the headphones on and make notes and, and pick out the little foibles and folds in the sound. But but no, I agree. For me, it, the concept is outrageous in the best possible way. McCartney did a dance album at the turn of you know the nineties or whatever with this like super hip guy youth. Like you know, it has all the makings of something fantastic. But to me, it lacks the fearlessness. You know, consider like the lineage of Beatles experimentation, solo work, uh, Wonderwall music, wedding album, um, the George record no one ever talks about, Liverpool sound, the one that's just two two sides of just synth gloops and like, you know, it's cool stuff. Like in terms of like, you know, tripping the disco ball like fantastic, this just doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't warm to me. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like Paul got to this swimming pool, you know, and he's ready to dive in, but it's just a toe here and there. And what we get is quite tepid, dare I say, granny dance music that doesn't make you want to take drugs. It doesn't make you want to get lusty. It doesn't, it kind of just makes you want to be like, oh, cool. Paul did, Paul did a trancy thing, you know, like it is, it is purely academic. It's more ambient than ambient, isn't it? It's just yes, like, yes. Like, uh, like you say, great to have on. It's the, the Eternals game. of yeah, of cool music. <laughs> uh, mm. All right, you know what? Let's let let's let's move into our phase four with gusto. We're right. going to start off with a song whose title sounds like a right wing movement trying to clamp down on the religious rights of people with non cisgender identities. This is trans spiritual stomp. Thank you. 
the moment you turn on a McCartney album, there's this moment of reassurance that you're, you know, returning to familial familiarity, you know, a sense of home, and you know, you think, ah, oh, yeah, this is classic Paul. And you don't get that with this song. Instead, when I first heard this track, I remember a genuine kind of excitement coming over to me that this was like nothing I'd ever heard of before. I mean, you know, I don't have the biggest exposure at all to ambient trance house or anything like that, but this was certainly not from the regular McCartney songbook. It was not cut from that cloth. And I knew that this was going to hopefully apply to the entire album moving forward. This is certainly the... But, but both the tone and mood setter for the album, but it's also the song that is kind of here, you, you, you know, in like a play like Les Mis or Oliver or something, where mm. they'll kind of show you the whole cast before the show starts. You kind of get the, that. The with, dramatis persona, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get that with all the with, with all the motifs. You probably, I'd say you probably get more than half of them, like the real line. I think you get here. all of them. I mean, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I'm... Because they're all in every song, aren't they? Pretty much. Yeah, like, like the, there might be one song that doesn't have a guitar or something. But. <laughs> there was that kind of like rainforesty jungle, like background noise that I thought was introduced way later on four four four, and then when you go back, it's just oh, it, this actually is there as well. So you do kind of have to listen to the whole thing to realise what you've been introduced to, because it might not come back for a while. There's a lot of setup and payoff, uh, you know, a lot a lot of Chekhov samples here. Mm. Um, and essentially, this is, you know, not a, a Paul McCartney song <laughs> because most of the time you have to sit through two verses and two choruses of something quite mediocre before going mm-hmm. into some of the cooler movements. But here with Youth at the Helm, you were introduced to the entire cast going forward for the rest of the album. And what's so cool about that is that you know that this isn't going to be about what samples they're introducing on the rest of the album, and it's going to have to be about what they do with it instead. Um, I can I can feel that by our chat just now that we're probably going to get a little less uh, um, charitable as this review goes on. But at this point in the album, I was very excited. I was really looking forward as to what was going to be happening in the future. I had hope for the future, and that is that is something really exciting. I never really got that with a lot of the McCartney albums from this era. It was more like, oh yeah, this is more of the same and you know in the way that a lot of uh, classical music fans were probably chomping at the bit to hear the rest of the Liverpool oratorio I bet there were many people listening to this thinking "Mm, let's see where he goes with this Uh, did you feel the same? I did actually yeah it was quite exciting listening to it and I wasn't aware that the whole record was essentially the same song on repeat. So hearing this for the first time was like, wow, this is, you know, if you just take it on its own merit as just a tune, like, you know, it works. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I think this song probably has the best intro of all the tracks, you know, the kind of radio frequencies ushering into that gentle subterranean throb. Like it's mm-hmm. fairly tense, you know, it's quite evocative. And the beat at times splits like meiosis and doubles. And then, you know, behind the main body of the song, things can be heard skittering. Uh, there's a hay, you know, there's the from of the 808. And then the song kind of opens up and, you know, we're greeted, as I said, with the same song when you hear for the next 70 minutes, stretched across nine songs with exciting titles, but ultimately quite mundane realities, you know. Um, I appreciate the Eno-esque shafts of ambient light that kind of filters over the top with the vocal samples. I mean, it's not an invigorating piece of pulsing electronica that really holds your attention despite the length, like, say, Kraftwerk or The Field, or, or indeed Tangerine Dream, which is a band that we're both big fans of. 
Um, but yeah, it kind of, I, 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 I don't know. It's, you know, I, I'm really not a fan either of some of the vocal uh, samples either. One of the ones that, yow, like that to me just sounds like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Like, you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Yeah. Is oh, it not? <laughs> yeah, it just every time I heard that, I was just thinking of Ant and Deck. Like, I just couldn't get away from it. Um, oh. And I wonder, I wonder, like, I'd love to see an experiment. Although, no, it's probably probably be the wrong wrong thing for it. I'm saying, like, go to Cream Fields, or go to a big dance festival, and put this on in the tent and see what happens. I mean, obviously, everyone's going to be monged off their face, so they're going to dance to any old shite. But I would like to see what like dance floor snobs make of this song and this album. Yeah, they'll probably prefer that remix of Temporary Secretary or 1985 yeah, I think, that was doing the I, rounds recently. I agree. I think people would smell a rat or, I guess, a beetle. I'm a rat, I'm a rat, I'm a rat. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, we get introduced to a load of the subtle and not so subtle samples here. We get that first guitar riff, very spaghetti westerny. that that's going to be across the entire album. Mm-hmm. You get that very, uh, well, at least a snippet of that insanely heavy guitar riff, which kind of reminds you of youth's punk and hard rock roots are kind of So that, that isn't on off the ground. I figured that would be on there. If it, if it is, it's not something I recognise no. at all, because that's a soft rock album. There's nothing like right, this on right. that. Obviously, you, you've got the I'm a Celebrity Ow, you've got mm. the Ringo getting it on, which again, yeah, you, yeah. I, I hope you like all of these things, folks, you are going to be hearing them a lot. You've got that sort of you've got that sort of filter thing that constantly is going over yeah. it. Yeah. And, and you've also got these tribal scream sounds that remind me a lot of the soundtrack for the recent Dune remake, the kind of yeah, to me, it evoked old Lord Greystoke, a.k.a. Tarzan. <laughs> is that, that was, Tarzan's real name is? Yeah, that, in, in, Edgar, in the Burroughs novels, yeah, he's known as um, Lord Greystoke, yeah. Oh, that's got to be used in in a, in a song somewhere, um, probably like Black Sabbath or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they evoke <laughs> Satan and old Victorian jungle men. But yeah, uh, the atmosphere of this one, Peaceful yet challenging, kind of all-consuming. Very spiritual from the outset as as, as well. Mm. Um, with a title, New like, Age, even. Yeah, like you, like you know, there's there's crystals and incense in the air. People with shawls on that have a psychedelic color scheme. You can definitely see that. Feels very Burning Man esque, maybe more mm. so than than like you know the Ibiza club scene. Yes. Um, and you know, with all these prefixes of trans, you know, you kind of you know, going from one world to another in all of these titles, you know, to a different dimension, a McCartney world. And obviously the stomp is just the fact that this song does have a big stomp to it. It self stomps. That's it. It's just that that is house music, isn't it? Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, With all of these titles, apparently youth did just come up with them on the night. So, I mean, the final one, say like sunrise mix, that was because the sun was coming up by the time he'd finished mixing the album. Mm. So maybe there are deep meanings, maybe there aren't. So we'll have to see as we move forward. But yeah, overall, an incredible introduction to the album. Confidently lays its cards on the table. And like every modern James Bond film, kind of promises more in its opening scene than it can live up to for the rest of the film. You know what I mean? That's fair. That's fair, yeah. Um, It is a spectre, undeniably. (laughs) <laughs> I was trying to think of a Casino Royale pun, but just fumbled. Yeah. Uh, on to the second song of the album right now. We're going to go into Trans Lunar Rising. Yeah, right. 
Right, folks, I need to point out that if you didn't like the last song, then spoiler alert, you really aren't going to like this one or any of the albums from this point onwards because this ain't your average McCartney album where we have a wide variety of melodies out the wazoo. Um, this is an extension, a continuation, a second movement, as it were. That's either going to excite you or bore you. Uh, Tom, you, you mentioned... Uh, the kind of radio tuning in sounds that we had. We get this again at the start here. And that seems to carry over from themes that we had uh, with Back to the Egg Wings final album, where the idea was each song on that album wasn't to be a different station on the radio. Right. Uh, so, you know, you had the first songs called The Broadcast. So, you know, it kind of, kind of speaks for itself. Bloody hell, Paul. You, you weren't burying the lead there, were you? But um, speaking of... Well, word to my guy Lawrence Dewar, though. Respect to Lawrence. Steve Holly, get on the pod, you know what I'm saying. Um, we, but we get loads of kind of very posh British vocal samples on this one, and that goes all the way back to Back to the Egg. Um, basically, when Youth was at McCartney's home in Sussex, he found the one of his original synths, one of his original keyboards that had a bunch of samples from the Back to the Egg sessions. And those are from the two experimental tracks on Back to the Egg, The Broadcast and Reception. Again, quite on the nurse title there. Um, the broadcast features the readings of two old people who own the castle that Wings were recording in at the time, and reception stitches random radio broadcasts together into a single track. And I'm not sure if Youth would have ever have gone with this kind of soundscape had he not happily accidentally came across those old McCartney save files on his PlayStation. But it's 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 a, it's a, a you know it's a gimmick that I have quite a lot of fondness for. Even the track itself ends with a bit of random classical music, which is quite Wings. Yeah. Also, um, this song really, Tom, is just making up for what the last song didn't do. Any uh, other samples that were not included in the first song are basically introduced into this one. It begins with that very groovy keyboarding, that kind of breezy, wheezy breath quality to it, and very McCartney yes it's clearly something that Paul just kind of made up on the spot evoking something like back in Brazil from Egypt Station you get those kind of staccato keyboard pips and then we even get some of that you know the street performers that put a bunch of pot and pans out and they do the drumming that, that yeah. way we get a lot of that in this song as well um this one's quite kind of fun for how dark it gets quite quickly. The first one was kind of a comparatively gentle introduction into this world. This one took a kind of beguilingly sinister edge to it. Um, there's a, a sense of apocalyptia across this whole album. Maybe not with the sense of urgency that should go with a tone like that, but there was a foreboding edge that youth certainly brought to this. You know, you know, this isn't going to be the songs we were singing from Flaming Pie or anything like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just more of the first one, but it's definitely safe to say at this point that's still interesting, that's still engaging with me as a listener. I'm still enjoying it. And at least, you know, for the first time you listen to this, you're like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Let's see where this goes. And at least at this point, the curiosity is still alive, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, to be honest with you, like, I'm reviewing the album as we're recording this podcast. Like, I'm not thinking the totality of, like, oh, at this point I was here or what. Like, for me, the sheen had already came off at this point. I was like, hang on, this is the same bloody song. And then when I went on Wikipedia and was doing a bit of research, oh, they are all. And then I just started clicking through Spotify and I would just click on minute one of this song and then minute five of Pure Trance and minute two of Celtic Stomp and it would all run into each other perfectly. And it'd be like, this is really odd. Like, you know, so, yeah, I guess... 
definitely feels a little bit more subdued than the first one. There are tiny little things that maybe you could strike out, little sonic garnishes. This one has a bit more dialogue dribbling through that I caught, you know, more staggering around when the synth comes to the fore, more, more building, you know, more of kind of everything we've heard before, but repackaged in a kind of fairly unappetizing way for me. Um, it doesn't achieve any Imperion-like groove. It's just the same old same, unfortunately. And um, there is a hopefulness that I detect in this music. You were just talking about the apocalyptic kind of nature. Like, there definitely is that. We're definitely quite barbed and quite cynical. But it's still, as all house and trance music has, has to have this sense of jubilation and kind of, you know, uplift. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, I guess it's trans, isn't it? So we have, we have had uh, trans-spiritual stomp, trans-lunar rising, pure trans. Like, you know, it's kind of... Youth is almost mocking us here by reusing the concepts, not only in the song, <laughs> but in the titles. No, but, you know, it's with these titles, it's very progressive, very, very 2022, I must say. Um, though, you know, you uh, can definitely interpret this title as, you know, the, the the moon has risen. This is meant to be danced to late at night on the, you know, in the in, in the deserts of America with the burning effigy in the background. The sun might be coming up soon. Uh, it's all again quite on the nose. There's 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 really nothing that to think about. Really, there's not a lot to sink your fangs into. Uh, if you are enjoying the, the music at this point, it is going to be just enjoying the music for what it is, which is I mean, pure trance, isn't it? Every yeah. single song is pure trance. Yeah, yeah. From trance two to trance three, then in third place, we're going to move on to the next movement of this epic journey which is transcrystalline which is a much better title like that I, I, I do enjoy that one
maybe by this point, people out there would be thinking that maybe these first two songs were a fluke and that maybe now would be the point where we get something different. Uh, we are well, we are nearly 20 minutes into this album now, but no, we're clearly in for the long haul here, folks. Um, I know a lot of people have switched off the album by this point, but when I f- was, was first going through it, this is where I first really started to get into that hypnotic sense of the album where you really do get lost in the atmosphere and that sweeping scope. It did feel overwhelmingly trippy and you know blur into this one unbroken literal trance. I was quite fixated on the music in that way. I wasn't engaging with it on any kind of academic level. Mm. Um, we know McCartney has a penchant for repetition and he, he really is taking things a step further here and kind of challenges you at the idea of what even like individual songs can be. Um, I guess the best way to describe this track would be it's a, a real litmus test to see how much you are willing to engage with this album on your own terms. And like any form of hypnotism, you really do have to be open to being susceptible to it. And at least for the first time, I was totally along for the ride at this point. Um, being 8 minutes 39, this is a, a, a shockingly short track for this album. But uh, we actually do get a couple of new samples uh, in this track. We get some kind of Australasian didgeridoo type sounds. There's kind mm. of um, there's some very whale-like whoops and howls. Uh, they did sound like Paul, but that's only because I've heard dance remixes of Paul stuff going back to the '80s, like No More Lonely Nights. That kind of reminded me of that. And then we get some brief glimpses uh, of the flute samples from Paul that we're going to get across other songs on this album as well, particularly like Celtic Stomp. Um, we even get a bit of quiet on this on this one. In the middle, there's a little teasing moment where you think something might change and then it actually doubles down and the beat is re-established with real gusto and it's back to the same kind of shtick. But at the end, we actually get a very reserved uh, quiet, almost like tribal percussion section, a mixture of like bongos and regular drumming, that kind of thing. And there's actually a moment of respite and reflection to kind of process this 25-minute suite. It, it reminded me a lot of something like Some People Never Know from Wildlife, which is another epically long song that ends in a bit of McCartney percussion. I, I mean, I mean, Tom, there's something that, that, that I worried about with the Tom Waits podcast, which was the idea that uh, you know, we've done so many albums and there's only so many ways you can talk about music and describe music, or at least that's how Fair. I felt at the time. And Fair, I say. Yeah, I feel like with this album particularly, though, you really do have to kind of get your English literature hat to kind of talk well, about Because it's the same songs. song, Sam. Yeah. You know, you, there's only so many ways to skin a cat. Like, And I'm yeah. sure some purists will be tearing their hair and I'll be like, oh, but, you know, and look, we're music nuts. Like, we're not dismissing this sort of stuff. We're very open to this sort of stuff and it is enjoyable album on its own terms. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, even then, Sam, you're talking about oh, Paul plays with the concept of what a song is. And I'm thinking, God, this guy doesn't have anything to say. This guy is just kind of going into the real abstract here because, yeah, because often I'm looking back at my notes now and I'm realising I'm repeating myself so much. And that isn't by virtue of brain damage. It's just because there just really isn't too much here to be said. Like you mentioned the pan pipes before the flutes which in Celtic Trance they, Celtic Stomp sorry they do something a bit more interesting there but but yeah I mean 
the drums feel a bit more flanged here to me, a bit more of a primitive rhythm section with getting it on, kind of fanning on top of some sort of, you know, celestial offering. Um, I like the percussion towards the end as well. You were saying when it gets quieter with the percussion, you know, um, the vocal pairing, which reminds me of kind of like, oh, darling, Abbey Road morning warm-ups, you know, towards the end, against the layers of percussion that slowly build like an ant's nest. I think there's a delicacy there that I appreciate in a constructive way. But, um, but yeah, yeah, again, really, we're just, you know, we're going on holiday and we're staying in the same hotel room. It's just, there's nothing that enlightening about this June. Yeah, you know, the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And this is an album of madness. I believe that's insanity, but but yes, same same idea. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, we have a song whose title seems to be the mission statement of the album itself. This is Pure Trance. trans this time we're actually going into the word trance and it kind of leads me to believe that maybe all the trans suffixes suffixes on the other tracks were meant to be a, a pun on the word trance we know mccartney loves a good pun but um yeah the moment of quiet we had at the end of the last tune probably the biggest tease of the album so far because again we just launched right back into some more intense sonic environments that we are very much familiar with um it's kind of amusing that now, four songs in, this is where Paul and Youth decide that this is where the pure trance begins, because we've nearly had half an hour of pure trance already. Um, I guess the main difference with this track it would be that it's a little more stripped back, at least at the start. It does have a slow build-up before it throws us right back into the phantasmagoria at the end of it. Um, there are more schizophrenic whisperings, and we get a lot of like, he goes really overboard with it, actually. Like, you know those vocal samples where they'll cut it off before they're kind of finished? So it's like, what, 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 what? And it was almost like Bogey Wobble, one of the bonus tracks from uh, McCartney 2. Um, again, I, I, I do... I am impressed by how Youth is able to kind of not waste a single scrap of flesh from the buffalo, and he is able to squeeze every last drop of funky blood out of these stones. But... <laughs> Am I going to be feeling this charitable with these kind of reviews for the next five songs? Probably almost certainly not. Though, is it safe to say that the target audience of this kind of thing is going to be more than on board with this over-repetition here? I don't, the thing is, I don't think there is a target audience because it is, it's for Paul heads. It's for completionists only and they don't care about this sort of music. I think people who are into this sort of music won't care that it's Paul and will take the music on its own merit and just move on because it's not that interesting. 
Yeah, it, it's kind of just a talking point at this point. Like, oh, like you say, oh, Paul did a dance album. That's cool. Is it worth listening to? Uh, next question. Let's just keep yeah. talking about how cool Paul is. Um, yeah, exactly. Sometimes these, uh, you know, these journeys can be fruitful. Like, you know, we're big Bare Naked Ladies fans and they did a kids record about 10 years ago and it's fantastic. And, you know, it was them at... Oh, I mean, not out too much of their comfort zone because they've always got this sort of, you know, this kind of nursery rhyme aesthetic to them. But here with Paul, you know, and it, McCartney too, arguably, is far more convincing of a foray into this world than Strawberry Ocean Ships and Forest ever is. Yeah, like Paul being uh, just sat alone as Mad Professor McCartney doing like Secret Friend and Frozen Japanese and Front Parlor. So, like so many more classic melodies, so engaging and... Many of the songs are quite short on that album as well. And, you know, it, it makes you want more. There's no one leaving Strawberry's Ocean Ships Forest with a sense of like, ah, oh, I, I wish that was another three songs longer, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it's, it, the cracks are showing already much sooner than I would have wanted in an album. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, the, the, the deconstructive moments at the end, I find quite interesting in this song, the bongos, colliding with the raspy percussive spittle uh, and it opens a bit more synambulant um, you know the synthetic hand claps as well can be heard and you know I appreciate there's no bones about it it's pure trance just calling it pure trance the album's pure trance you know it gets to the point but like I said earlier with the bird watching um, this was one where I was ticking furiously you know there were so many things like oh that thing that thing that thing you know and it just it gets to the point of ennui where it's it's beyond being a sort of interesting diversion and then just lapses into wow, they're, they're really, we're halfway through this record and I almost know subconsciously that there's going to be nothing really surprising. Like, I, There's one song, I would argue, that maybe takes a little bit of a chance, but I think that's to its downfall, really. I I, I don't like that tune at all, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to in loads of musicals, though, you do get those light motifs that come back over and over again, and they are so much more thrilling. Yeah, but they're and, melodic, though. They're memorable. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you know, like just go, like you know, going going back to like who will buy and like oh they've or like you know, a, a boy for sale and like oh they've referenced mm-hmm. that again. How fun's that? Whereas here you almost have to wonder what the methodology of this whole thing was. Like, did youth have a big, like, uh, uh, the reverse of, of uh, your checklist? You know, I must use samples one, seven, nine, and two in this song because I didn't use them all that much in the in the last song. Yeah. There's an awful sense of um, ob- obligation to kind of keep a lot of these going. I would have preferred if all of these samples were much sparser throughout the record. Uh, I mean, well, <laughs> I would have preferred unique melodies and unique songs across across the record, really. Um, I think we're already getting to the point where the concept of this being an album is falling apart, and it's quite clear that, yep, yeah, should, should have just been a couple of 12 inches, A and B side, or maybe have just been an EP or something like that. Shame it's not. At this point, I'm kind of wondering whether McCartney's just trying to see what he can get away with. Um, but, yeah, we'll uh, press on now to probably... I mean, not in terms of my uh, this thing as an album, but probably my favourite individual song from this, my mm. one that I would take away from this, which is Arizona Light.
course, it's hard not to think of Get Back whenever Arizona and McCartney is in the same song, but the real-life reference to this title is probably more pointed towards the lovely Linda herself. Despite being in New York, Linda went to the University of Arizona and bought a ranch with Paul there and eventually died there in 1998. I did enjoy this one, at least the first half. You had a lot of very Indian-esque droning notes, that kind of hypnotic tabla-like percussion. It almost felt like it could be used over stock footage of Paul at Rishikesh. You had the introduction and a, a lot of use of that guitar sample. That's probably my favourite sample of the bunch, really. Uh, we got all the old familiars here, but at least they're a little lower in the mix. Do you think like a huge drop's going to come in a lot of these songs, especially this one, I felt... But like none of them ever do. It's all about tension for tension's sake. It's not very Hitchcockian. Like he, he's telling us that there's a bomb under the table, but then the bomb never explodes, and it's it really takes the wind out of, out of your sails here. Yeah, it ain't dubstep. It's not kind of. There's no crescendo really. It's just it's meant to just continue that high, isn't it? You know that pulse. Mm. I did like the production on this one. It was a little quieter. It had a lot of that. Uh, Julian Mendelssohn production from Off the Ground where like a lot of the sounds felt like they're coming from the room next door or underwater or from inside someone else's car next to you on the motorway, kind of muted in that sense. And I did find myself, you know, engaging with it a little more than other songs on this album. Though this is one of the songs where I really just do wonder how much even McCartney knows about these genres at all. And how much he's just relying on youth saying that this is cool because they're just part of just thinking it's Paul going oh, oh yeah you know that sounds cool Ooh. and whenever he says you know youth are the kids going to like this youth doesn't have the heart to tell him that probably not actually Paul this is probably going to be ironically for no one mm. the one thing I would say positively about Arizona Light specifically is that the songs do fly by quicker than you would expect with run times of something like 8.39. You know, at least when you're not constrained to the idea of the standard two or four minute McCartney tracks, there is a, a certain blending of them together, which does create this grand idea and this grand scope, especially when you can change your settings on things like Spotify and actually blur the tracks together. I don't know how they sound on the record, on the vinyl or on the CD, but, you know... This is probably the last point on the album where I'm going to at least meet it halfway, you know? Yeah, yeah. More of a slow offering here, uh, slightly building into it. Ethereal and toiling. Uh, the percussion sounded louder to me here as well, but it was less gripping, less concerned, I guess, with the pure trance that had been exhibited, exhibited prior. Um, there's that whipping... There's those pad sounds. There's that guitar. Although, no, there's, I don't think there is guitar on this one, actually, but it's kind of more leans into the synths, but there's kind of essences of it. But um, but it's weird, isn't it? Because it's like, why aren't all these songs exactly the same length if they're essentially exactly the same? Like, what, they are pretty much end around the same 30-second span, give or take. But, yeah, Arizona Light to me, like Transcrystalline, like Translunar Rising, you know. It's almost like we're reviewing one song here, Sam, ultimately, because it's kind of otios to go through these, isn't it? Because they just... Words to Mary Kate and Ashley, but these are really similar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's only so many ways you, 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 you can say, oh, this is another dance track. It's like the word ethereal in my notes as well, dude, is like 
so yeah. often, so often mm-hmm. there, so present. And I mean, you literally could re- like review this album. You know, obviously we, we do song by song just as as a format. But this is one of the only album reviews I can think of where the main meat of the conversation is the pre-chat and the post-chat because most of this is just us talking about minor differences and saying how similar they are. It's it's very strange. It's very un-McCartney-ish. You just mentioned the, the lack of guitar on that one. I think I was thinking about this next song uh, whose name sounds like something that the Romans used to do. This is Celtic Stomp. <laughs> Hey! 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 Hey!
Uh, yes. We have a lot more of the classic early album energy with this track. We get reintroduced to all those same themes and samples again. But this is where, I've got to be honest, folks, you know me, I don't sugarcoat things. I was just like, oh, God, this again. Especially when you look at how long these songs are and still how much of the album is left to go. I was I was growing tired. I still, I was shocked at how much I could still kind of have fun if I forced myself to do it. But if you don't have this energy, then, then it is a complete write-off. And you have to ask yourself, is this truly worth sitting through to get the, 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 the moments of levity and those few very surface level differences you know the only real thing we get here is the flutes uh, we get a lot of what youth called the flute thing and it does make sense with a title like celtic stomp i was thinking of something akin to more say mccartney's standing stone album and we actually get a, a you know a more concentrated use of those flute tracks they do give it a kind of ancient druidy ritual ritualistic flair that did make it sound epic despite its its modern flourishes. Uh, I also, I feel like I heard some string arrangements in the background, but if they were there, they were very buried. Yeah, just again, a lot, a lot of the same stuff, a lot of that same guitar riff, a lot of, hey, and getting it on. Uh-huh. And oh, I can imagine just a lot of people losing their patience massively at this point. I doubt many people have even got this far into the album unless they were really in it for the long haul. No, according to Spotify, this song has been streamed twice. And I think that's probably by me and you. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and, and even those numbers probably have a, a, a you know a 50% inaccuracy to them. I mean, th- there is the idea that maybe this isn't for guys like you and me to sit around with, with, with our headphones on and our thinking caps. Um, I mean, I remember when I was listening to this on a bike ride to work and, you know, it did feel more fitting, like, you know, the idea of it's just me and doing, doing my pedaling, trying to focus on the road ahead. It did kind of work for me a little bit more. This obviously isn't sitting down music, but outside of that, it basically just sounds like me saying as long as you don't concentrate on the music with any intensity or try and critique it at all it's fun and you know that doesn't make for a good album at all this is this is purely background noise at this point yeah yeah entirely no and i don't think there's anyone's kind of favorite record in this world um celtic stomp you know nothing particularly indo-european about this offering at all you know probably the thing that stood out most to me was about two minutes in when some of the um you know it starts to sort of spill and wheeze and there is some layering detectable in it at times stabs of throaty movements that you know are detectable but for the most part still kind of you know under the skin still a bit monotonous um you know it's weird because this one has some recognizable recognizable changes at points that i sort of you know, stick in the mind a bit more, like the, the fanfare and the pans that sort of um, meld with the simps. Um, but yeah, I mean, something that could be tried a bit differently would be welcome here. But I do like how the flute melody kind of plays into the synth melody and they kind of overlap over each other. But again, ultimately, Celtic Stomp is going to evoke the same feelings in you that Arizona Light and all the predecessors did. You know, it is, uh, it's not reinventing the wheel. A really fun game would be to get a bunch of McCartney fans, some hardcore ones, some middle-of-the-road ones, and some newbies, and just put this album on shuffle and see if they can guess within the first 10 seconds which of the songs from this album it yeah. is. 
Because, I mean, I reckon 80% of the of people would get it wrong because 90% of them just start with, okay, I've got a one in nine chance of guessing which which one this is. Yeah, folks, do not expect things to get better here. The night is darkest just before the dawn. Onto the title track now, we have Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest. was not so much the beginning of the end as it was just the fucking straight up end uh as much as i've been enjoying the unique journey of this album uh and the self-patting on the back i gave myself for quote unquote getting its experimentation it was here where the novelty of the experiment just wore off I, again i totally get what they're going for here but objectively we need more soundscapes and melodies and hooks for us to sink our teeth into here especially on this latter point in the album i mean i am willing to be proved wrong on this point but it's hard to stand out from the crowd with any of these songs when by design they are not meant to stand out from the crowd and for the title track you know that's a real shame like you'd like to think that the title track at least would be something a little more radio friendly maybe or you know just less of a, a b-side than any of the other songs after the first one i really am having to rely on that this old thesaurus here to uh, talk about any of these songs now in in any detail it's just another low temple incorporeal track with moments of danceability and intensity you know? yeah i mean my, i've written the least for this track because yeah i was disappointed same. as well where's the title track sounds like the fucking rest of them you know, same tempo, same mood, same transition, same offerings, nothing endearing or engaging, you know. The final two minutes are somewhat interesting, you know, kind of tangle of voices and samples and stuff. But, but yeah, I, it, the first song is probably the best one, isn't it? I think yeah, it, is. it introduces the concept, but I also think it is also the best one. Um, and you'd think that maybe it would be this one just because it has a title track, but maybe we're reading too much into that. You know, who cares? It's title track. It's just coincidence that it is or whatever. But um, but yeah, this one, <laughs> I mean, very, very hard. You know, we sort of had a little bit of this problem, didn't we, when we were doing The Family Way because uh, some of that <laughs> repeated itself a little bit. But that was far more interesting musically, undeniably. But that was very motif and like motif driven. But, but this in particular, it is just astonishing. Like, you know, we, we're quite discerning listeners. Obviously, we're doing a podcast about it, so we'll listen and make notes, whatever. But I think most people, I, I bet there were so many McCartney fans who just picked this up. Like, what's his name? Word to my guy, uh, me, Mr. Mayo, right? He's like <laughs> he's like a big McCartney collector. And I I'm not saying he, he don't like this. Well, that's like what I'm saying. I'm not saying him in particular, but I'm saying these sort of guys that have their room that I'm so jealous of, all their rare Beatles and McCartney stuff. Like, 
I don't think this tickles any of their pinks, you know? No, the, I mean, the best thing about this album in terms of, like, its existence is that its physical format is really rare. And if you own a copy of Strawberry's Ocean Ships Forest, you know, you've got a real diamond there. You know, it, I mean, this oh, doesn't yeah, exist much, is on it eBay. Qu- it's like £250 for, like, a single copy of it. Like, it's mm, so rare. It's what, like... It, but, you know, that happens with all of the 90s vinyl when the real takeover of CD happened. Um, but even the CDs of this album are quite rare as well. Whereas mm. if you look at something like Electric Arguments, you can get it for like 20 quid. Because it was... Right, it, right, it, right. It, they, they, they made all Wasn't that long ago, yeah. Yeah, you know, the cat was out of the bag by this point. I mean, so much of keeping this under the radar was the fact that it didn't have many copies as well. And... I guess that would annoy some of the McCartney fans out there because, like, oh, it's this obscure thing. I will put my fandom to the test as it will. And a lot of people probably didn't even pass the test. Like, I can honestly see this being more unpopular than albums like Give My Regards to Broad Street or Run Devil Run, things like that, where they don't have a, a really good con- like consensus. And, I mean... You know, folks, you're listening now and you are more than likely over the age of 50. This is definitely not your thing at all. This is not McCartney by the fireside doing a three-finger acoustic picker. Uh, I, I keep thinking about what, about what you said, dude. I don't know who this album's for. And, yeah, in the way that, you know, when I was first getting into McCartney, we'd, we'd, we'd be at one of our friends' houses and I'd try and slip on, check my machine... And, you know, some people might turn around and be like, oh, what's this? This is interesting. Oh, this is McCartney. That's cool. Uh, you, you're definitely not going to get that effect with this, especially not with Strawberry's Ocean's Ship's Forest, no. the seventh track in the album. I do feel like, though, going back to something else you, you said, the first track probably would have been one of the singles uh, if it was right. just just going to be a couple, a couple of 12 inches. And the, oh, the, the, this is really flogging a dead horse by this point. But at least, dude, for the next track, we have a real c- c- combo breaker in 444.
obviously to anyone who's been listening to a bunch of the get back stuff around around this time they know that uh, the next supposed Beatles album after Abbey Road was going to have a 4-4-4 split between Lennon-McCartney and Harrison in terms of how many songs they'd have on the album. But that really is me stretching to, to kind of oh, think, yeah, of, think of a time. Yeah, because it would be 4-4-4-2 if you're including Ringo as well. Mm. But yeah, I doubt McCartney was there, you know, talking to youth about the Get Back and Abbey Road sessions during this time. So, you know, after seven songs of admittedly expertly recycled soundscapes with 444 finally we have a brand new percussion sample like give this album a round of applause folks you know we have this very foreboding tribal ancient drum beat that slowly turns into this more synthetic kind of pipey beat uh you know and it, you know it almost has this like transition of like falling asleep or something it's quite it's quite a lucid dream tri- uh, quite track and for an album with so many of the same sounds this track, whilst maybe not being revolutionary on any other album, is a breath of fresh air here. And I was over the moon when I heard this. I was like, oh my God, maybe for the last two tracks, they, they're going to go off the wall and do something different. Though, uh, annoyingly, you've still got a lot of the familiars here. A lot of those droning synths come back. But at least it's a move in the right direction. This is also the track, along with that drum beat, expands on the use of that Sounds of the Rainforest aesthetic, which I thought was quite mm-hmm. interesting. Um, you know, for an album so obviously industrial and artificial, it was a pleasant surprise to have so many naturalesque sounds. Uh, obviously, this was a very green and politically active period for Paul's well, so that kind of makes sense. But oddly enough, I was reminded most of all uh, by that song at the end of the McCartney One album, Creena uh, Crawray. Do, do you remember that one? Yeah, that was like the, what, the hunting one or whistling through the wind or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, I remember that one, yeah. You know, and that's a, a McCartney album that literally ends with the sound of the jungle as well. Um, in all reality, though, dude, this song should have come so much earlier in the track listing. I mean, if this had been like the third or the fourth track, I think it at least would have staved off the feelings of over-repetitiveness that this album sorely suffers from. Though it, it would only delay the problem and the true solution would be that you probably need at least three or four songs like this. And again, it's not reinventing the wheel, but, you know, you can't just have a bit of flute inclusion. You, you really do need a couple of major differences, which this song at least does have and if they'd expanded upon this song maybe or use this one as a tentpole to work towards in you know trying to liven up the album a bit maybe we wouldn't be so negative now um this is also the shortest track on the album uh which is quite shocking actually because it, it, it's shorter than hey jude and yet it, it, st- <laughs> it, it still feels oh no you know it, so it's longer sorry it's longer than hey jude but it does it still feels it, I guess. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, like, Hey Jude's one of those songs where it's like, shit, we've been listening to this for six minutes. It feels like two minutes has barely gone by. But even here, with a song that I was quite excited with, uh, by the end, I'm like, oh, no, this is this is a tease that isn't going to go nowhere. Going going, going back to Marvel, this is, this is like them saying, oh, we're going to do new and exciting and different stories with the TV stuff. Oh, WandaVision's going to be this exploration of TV shows throughout you know the history of tv and then by the final episode it's people flying in the sky shooting lasers in their hands and that's what you get with this yeah. song here 
Yep, yep, pretty much. She pretty much said it all, really. I think this is probably the most recognisably different tune, but also kind of one of the worst ones. And I think <laughs> the reason it feels different is because you have these flangy, splattery drums that kind of oscillate around, and it kind of numbs the decorative assault of the tune into more of a paste. Um, you know, there's chatter at the end as well. I like the inference that you were saying of the title. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's quite quite fun. But, but yeah, again, you know, this is... This is probably the one that I could point to that I'd say is most markedly different from the rest. But even then, it's pretty much identical. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 like that one kid in a in a group of goths that think he's even more different than the rest of them. But mm-hmm. in in his difference, he's more like them than he'd ever like to admit, or her, or her, of course. Uh, and finally, dude. I mean, fortunately for us, due to the incredible length of all these songs, we're already on the final track of the day, track nine, which is Sunrise Mix. Mm-hmm. sounds of the amazon rainforest that was so prominent in the last track uh, i was thinking oh okay maybe we're going to continue the at least different sounding motifs and sounds that we had in the last one but no this is a last hurrah for all of those classic elements that we've had uh you know we've had the second major tease of this album now we're not going to do anything different we're going to slip right back to the regular programming use all the main samples from before and if you had any newfound hope with this last song being anything other than retreading a well-worn path, that hope was completely misplaced. It was never going to go any other way, was it? No, no. Um, you know, beginning with that sort of rainforest insect wash as a solitary eight to eight pounds incessantly, it kind of, you know, it's kind of a predatory heave to it that's ushered in by the percussive cymbal swells. In the distance, horns rise as further embellishment kind of rests on top of the pulsated movements. There's a sense of this being, and the whole song's entirely really being an entree rather than a dessert, because obviously this is the close to the song. Um, there's a meditative, solemn hit around two minutes that establishes itself, but, you know, it's very, very typical, you know. They try and liven things up a little bit, the fireman, with a swinging synth of sorts that threatens to carve out a melody, but unfortunately... By the end, when you're on this final song, you know how every single piece of music is going to go. So it's just very much a case of, oh, is block A going to be in front of block B or behind it? You know, that, that that's all we're really looking forward to. And um, it doesn't even end on, on any kind of note, does it? It just kind of fades out on these locust clicks and pad swells. And it's fairly anonymous. You know, it's not very kind of intriguing kind of, um, you know, it's no aplomb here. At this point in the record, I'd already made my peace with the fact that it wasn't going to be 
using the same structure of any normal album or even any normal McCartney album. But there was a part of me still kind of holding out for one of those 1985 Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, big, bombastic, brash, mm. Hollywood-esque McCartney endings. You know, one of those good night, folks, get home safely kind of deals. And no, instead, like sex in a stagnant five-year relationship. We are just going through the same motions with no attempt to do anything remotely creative or interesting. Um, you know those really trite, cringeworthy re reviews where someone who has never taken any drugs in their life says that, oh, this song or this album's better with drugs or requires drugs? Well, this is kind of like the opposite, really. This is what uh, an album where I, I kind of... I kind of wish there were drugs involved at any point, either in the listening or the uh, or the or the production, because there's just nothing going on here. Um, <laughs> like you know, when you get to the end of a Lego construction manual, you know you've built you've built the set, which is song one, and then you get all those like you know this plane set. You could also turn it into a police station, but it's a really mm -hmm. shitty police station because the bits aren't properly crafted for that purpose. You know, this is. This is like you know, not even the police station. This is a little ice cream stand, which is which which clearly has you know an airport wing as part of its makeup. It, it, just, I'm so disappointed by this point. I really am. I thought at least maybe we'd have something to make it worth the journey, but it almost feels cyclical. Like we are just back at the beginning again. But not in that really fun way that, you know, you kind of get that with like, please, please, but, you know, twist and shout. And you go right back into I saw her standing there again and you have all that fun. Oh, this, this would be like going from Revolution 9 into Revolution 9 again. It's uh, it's, not, yes. it's not the best, really. Um, no. Um, you know what? We've, we've made our way through the fire and brimstone. That was Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest by The Fireman, Paul and Youth. And now that the specific opinions on each song, which admittedly did get shorter and shorter as we went on, but I think that's kind of built in, really. Uh, let's let's have a little plenary. Uh, first of all, dude, do you regret signing up for this episode? And has your curiosity for the next album been shattered? Uh, no, I certainly don't regret coming on this show. Uh, it's always a treat to chat Paul and assorted uh, miscellaneous so associated with the guy. But also for me, you know, you know me, I'm a bit of a musical anorak. I love musical history. So it was important to me just personally that I listen to this album and know this album because if it ever comes up in conversation, I can <laughs> accurately dismantle this album. So, um, yeah, it's... it's it ha one of the things I will say is it's not been added to any of my playlists. So it, it, none of these songs have made any great impact on me. I think ultimately because one of the records that I loved most last year, and I want to urge people if they're into this sort of music, check out a record called Floating Mountains by a Japanese composer called Soshi Takedo. And it's very like this, actually. It's very trancey, it's very meditative, it's very dub-based. But that music is so exciting to listen to and so addictive. It's the opposite of this. So no, I do not regret this. And, um, you know, I'm keen to get to the next Fireman record because there's more Paul in it, isn't it? It's not a sample mm -hmm. of Paul. It's actually him engaging the brain. Soshi Takeda, I've just added that to my Spotify playlist. Hey, and there you go. I've... Yeah, I mean, yet more music you are introducing me to, kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's funny you should mention that because like... You can you can detail my progression through Paul and I think with my Paul McCartney playlist. You know, there's three songs or four songs from an album. Oh, there's three songs from Round. There's a few songs from Wildlife, and you can see what's made an impact. And 
on my playlist, it goes off the ground material straight to Flaming Pie because there's just been nothing from this album mm. that's made any impact. Well, what about um, is, is there an archive release of Off the Ground? No, that's going to be one of the next ones. And a lot of people reckon maybe we're going to get uh, this album with it. I yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is there going to be Yuffie stuff on there? Surely. Well, it, it, it's definitely going to have the Deliverance and Deliverance dub mixes on there because they're much more as a, you know, a part, a part of those sessions. I'm more in the in the in the realm in the camp that they'll just do the Feynman archive edition, which will be all three. It'll be a big box. It'll have a pro- massively prohibitive uh, price tag to it, um, which would be upsetting, really, because I'd love just a reprint of Strawberries, Oceans, Ships, Forest. In the same way that I want a reprint of Off the Ground, just to have it be affordable and more widely available. Mm. Um, I mean, it would be a pretty cool way to sell the off-the-ground one to people who think it might it might be a bit middle-of-the-road and boring. Just, oh, by the way, the bonus disc is the first Fireman album. That would be a, a pretty cool set. Um, though, you know, we didn't get the family way in, in any of these archive sets either. Uh, we didn't get any of the, like, um, you could easily have had Liverpool Oratorio or Standing Stone be a part of the Flaming right. Pie box set. That didn't happen either. He does seem to be keeping these things entirely separate. Um, but you never know. There is, again, hope for the future there. Um, again, back to what I said at the start of this episode, this album is a lot more interesting to me conceptually than I find to be actually enjoyable uh, maybe outside of the context of quote unquote having to listen to this album for a podcast for content, maybe I could chill out with it a little more. But I mean, writing the notes for this one was an incredibly stressful experience. Um, I'm I'm not going to be rushing back to this album anytime soon. I mean, you know, I mean, for the sake of posterity, I might add a trans spiritual stomp back into that playlist. You know, yeah. just um, I mean, this is. I'd say that this is an album that starts off on the right foot, but quickly outstays its welcome. The first track is incredibly strong, but by tracks three or four, you know, you do feel like, okay, something's up here. And then by five, six and seven, you are just wondering what the hell you've just spent your money on. Uh, This really should have only been two maximum three 12 inch singles. Again, maybe an EP that would have been a much tighter, much more well-oiled experience. Um, something I, I thought was quite interesting, though, dude. I mean, Youth is the bass player for Killing Joke. Paul McCartney was the bassist for The Beatles and for Wings. And yet we get no badass bass lines across this entire album, which is a massive missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's all about being one piece, isn't it? Without any kind of lead instrument. So that would kind of detract from it. But I get, I get what you're, I, point taken. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, this is just... An experience. This is a trivia piece. This is a curiosity. This is something that uh, will go in every Paul McCartney book. He'll have two pages writ- written about it and very little more. Um, I wish Paul was a little more involved in this process. Like, I mean, th- I, th- that's why people like Electric Arguments and Rushes a whole lot more than this one. The, the, the great, the famed Steve Hoffman forums they talk about this one for maybe two or three 
uh, forum messages back and forth. No one really has an opinion on this at all. There are barely any reviews on allmusic.com or rateyourmusic.com. It's not made an impact with the hardcore fans, with with the new younger fan base. Like we're prime to you know be involved in this. Like <laughs> it's not a case with you know the throngs of the over fifties that might listen to this podcast you know, not being cool enough or not being able to get it. it the album just doesn't work, does it? No, no, certainly not. Um, and as I said prior, go listen to Floating Mountains, people. Go listen to From Here We Go Sublime by The Field from 2007. That's an unbelievable record. And they they just, they're completely in the same wheelhouse as the fire, firemen, but they just, I don't know, they, they rise or is this kind of turns to cinders? Yeah, Folks, you know, normally here on Paul or Nothing, especially when I have my good friend on here, I'm always worried about filling up enough time, making it worthwhile for you guys to listen to. And at the end of this, I have nothing else to say. <laughs> As someone who really enjoys going on digressions and writing whiffle and waffle, you know, to fill up an extra 15 minutes here or there, even, even at my, you know, most strenuous, I can't do it. There is nothing more to say. Wow. So finally a positive to this album. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, the best thing about this entire experience was that it got me to get my old copy of uh, the Batman killing joke comic book and give that another, another read. Um, hey. that's, a, that's about it. Word really. to Alan. Word yeah. to Alan. Worship that snake God you worship mm-hmm. uh, up, up in Nottingham. Mad props. Northampton. <laughs> Oh, Northampton is it? Sorry, Northampton. Northampton yeah. Uh, the, was it the, the the cultural dearth of the world or something like that? He called it. It's a it's a great quote if you can find it. But yeah, um, if we're doing out of tens, I'm going to give this probably my lowest that I've ever given on the show a four out of ten. Maybe if we're doing Rotten Tomatoes, a forty three percent or something like that. But this is a Rotten Tomato, right? Ah, uh, I don't. I don't think it's outwardly bad. I just think it's a little boring. I think I think it's kind of it's conceived well, but I, I would go for a four as well. Yeah, um, I, if I if I was, if if I thought it was bad, bad, I'd give you like a two. But I just think it's just it's just not that invigorating of a listen. It doesn't kind of it doesn't doesn't hit the objectives that this sort of music's really aiming for. You know that kind of that blissful transcendence. I feel like Paul was maybe hoping in the back of his head that this album would have been a lot bigger and more impactful than it was. Though I am glad that it's not like his poetry, uh, his book Blackbird Singing, that did get savaged in the press, especially by more people who are a lot more uh, poetically uh, learned than himself. And, you know, that was back in 2001, came out just after 9-11. We've had no more Paul McCartney poetry. He never returned to that well. And yet, obviously, the reception for this album was good enough. The experience of making it was good enough. And his listening to it back after its release was, you know, enjoyable enough for him to go back and revisit the farm. And we've still got two more. We've also got to touch on... Um, the Liverpool sound collage, which used as the third track of. So, you know, a rocky start, you know, maybe this is the man of steel of this universe where you know, we really still need to find out how we're going to progress further. Maybe we'll get a little more sure-footed as we go. But yeah, folks, that was another episode of Paul or Nothing. I've been kindly joined by my very good friend, Tom Quee, you know, my my maestro, 
another Lennon to my McCartney. I seem to have several on this show now. Uh, dude, tell tell people about what you're doing in the world of podcasting. I mean, uh, yeah, guys. So the main thing, I mean, I've got a few other shows going. Battle rap resume. I don't really do too much now, but do an episode every you know every couple of months. Really, where I cover UK battle rap and battle rap around the world, interview battle rappers, etc. But the main thing that I'm doing currently is, as Sam said, called the Royal Rambles. I worship the Royal Family, the uh, BBC television sitcom, and basically it's myself just going through the script with a fine tooth comb, uh, picking apart all the references, all the dialogue, all the performances, giving my own theories, and um, and just appreciating what I feel is a masterpiece that has long deserved a podcast. And currently, uh, when this goes to air. I just uploaded the final episode of series two. Well, technically the Christmas episode is, but the final episode of the first, of the main run, uh, Anthony's birthday. So uh, yeah, go back, check that out. And what I do on there is I review the episodes, but I also have a little mini series in between the episodes where I have guests on and I do a Royal Family quiz, basically. Because if anyone's seen the Royal Family, they know there is a show stuffed with details and history. And um, yeah, it's just very, very fun to wade through that. So if you're into the Royal Family... Go check that out. It's called The Royal Ramble. Any Beatles or McCartney references in the Royal Family at all? Yes, actually. Yes. Um, I'm j- so basically, Anthony, the son, has a band called Exit. And the reason they're called Exit is because wherever they play, their name will be up in lights. And uh, basically, <laughs> he... Um, he say he's going to go to London to try and get them a record label. And Jim, the father, does says like, "Oh, Brian Epstein over here!" Like he does, he does, he does refer to him as Brian Epstein. I think that's the only reference to the Beatles. Um, although I haven't kind of rewatched the episodes in depth up to this point, but I have seen them many, many times. Off the top of my head, I think that's the only reference. Yeah. Yeah. Although weirdly as well, um, today is the uh, would have been Jeffrey Hughes's birthday. So Jeffrey Hughes plays Twiggy, um, the ruddy-faced kind of scally man. Oh, the guy from Heartbeat as well. The guy from Heartbeat, yeah, exactly. And did you know he was the voice of Paul McCartney in the Yellow Submarine film? Fuck, he was, wasn't he? Oh my god, he was God. indeed. That's he was his... indeed. So that's, that's another pull. That's a pull, dude. Well yo, done. <laughs> yo, yo, yo. Very appreciative of that. So and. and, and and it would have been his birthday today. So R.I.P. Jeffrey Hughes, fantastic actor. So, so good in the Royal Family and elsewhere. But yeah, I think they're the only two Beatles references. I'll, I'll let you know if I think of any more, but I'm pretty sure that's it. No, it reminds me of, of uh, when, I, when uh, probably the worst episode of this show, which uh, I'm sure you could tell me what it, the what Vic? it is. Yeah, the, the episode was <sighs> fixing and one of the most uh, cloying, clawing, desperate questions was, can we think of any Beatles references in The Sopranos? And there is that classic moment where uh, AJ finds a copy of Rubber Soul in the... Is it in Lady Gaga's house? Is that where he is? No, no. Uh, it's when he's... Devon, who is his rich friend, um, and Paul Dano's there. Oh, who looks like he's from the Rubber Soul cover. But no, Lady Gaga is in the Telltale Mazadool from Series 3, <laughs> where they um, they throw, they they hijack the, the gym, don't they, Jim? They, they throw the they trophies throw in, in the pool. Yeah, so, so she's only in it for a second. But yeah, that's... And obviously, um, you know, uh, Carmela talks about birthday to AJ as well. There's a few Beatles references. Never a moment where there's just like a fucking... Tony Soprano in the car, listening to some, you know, Radio Rock. We just check. There's just none mm-hmm. of that. It's always a little harder, a little more acerbic, I guess. Um, you know, maybe we could have had. Maybe I'm amazed in place of Don't Stop Believing, but 
But, you know, I mean, nothing will ever be just a small town girl as Carmela walks into the bar. It's, hey. it's, it, it's, it's just brilliant. But, yeah, folks, b- b- uh, before we end up just going down memory lane far too much, uh, I'd like to thank my guest, Tom, the host of the Royal Ramble et al. Oh, also, folks, um, there was an episode of Pun- uh, we did an episode of Punnett here on uh, Pun- oh, yes. think, a, co- a couple of weeks ago with the guys from Blotto Beatles. Obviously, Tom, you are the progenitor of uh, Punnett, which is probably... You know, I don't. I don't blame the world for that show not taking off as much as it should have. But it is mm. the world's fault. It is everyone else's fault, not ours. That that was hey. not more successful. It was a wrong. really, a, a really fun show. But yeah, folks, go and check out all of Tom's stuff. I listen to his content every week. You know, it's just one of those. It's real comfort food for me. Uh, I've been accused many a time of basing my entire personality off this guy. So if you like my content, you'll well, definitely like Tom's as well. But yeah, we Strawberries Ocean Ships Forest. We've done that in a nice, tidy 90 minutes, dude. Well done. Hey. So, uh, I'm going to say peace and love, peace and love. Keep listening to Paul. Keep listening to youth. Go and check out Killing Joke. Go and check out the remix of Mob Scene by Marilyn Manson. I'm sure you'll get a few yucks out of it. But I've been Sam. He's been Tom. Take care, everyone. Easy, guys. No more autographs. I will always be